You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protea Machining. And this week, I'm very happy to be rejoined by... Yeah, I'm, I'm Easton from Moria Manufacturing. Well, thanks for coming back on, man. I didn't realize it had been a year and eight months since the last time you were on. It was like the last roundtable with Drew and Jake. No, I think I was on March. a little bit sooner than that. I was technically on for the IMTS thing, so that would have been September of last year. Okay, yeah, that, that's fair. But last real episode where we heard about your shop was in March. So give us all of the updates. I think you've wow. acquired like a bunch of machinery since then. I looked back, and I think you had just gotten your Swiss at that episode, and that was it. Okay, so then I guess I've gotten three machines since then not including the manual mill. Um, And I also don't think I had gotten my new shop space at the moment. So I don't even think you were thinking about it at that point. Yeah, because the construction would have started in November of 2021. So because we were there for IMTS and you were showing us around, you're like, this is probably going to be my space. Like, I think I'm going to take it over. And it had not even started last year. Okay. Yeah. In September. Yeah, so it would have so been last year, November, then, I guess. Basically, a year ago, it would have started. All right. So I guess we'll start there because I'm not sure what happened before that because my brain is constantly scrambled. But um, yeah. So I, we, we got a, there was like a section of the building that my landlord was not utilizing anymore. And actually, there were no tenants in that room. Um, so they kind of offered it to me and it was a little bit of like, I don't know if I need this space, but I'll probably need it eventually. Spoiler, it's, it's completely full already. But so what they did was they offered this space and I said that I would take it on the condition that I got another 200 amps of three phase. Um, and so they ended up saying that we we worked out kind of a deal where I paid for part of the electrical and they kind of paid for the renovation. And what they ended up doing is they added about 1200 square feet onto my shop um, by kind of knocking out one wall and walling off kind of two other little like openings. Um, They polished the floor, updated the electrical to kind of be the same as the rest of my shop, painted it. uh, And most importantly, added another 200 amps of three phase. So we're up to 400 now. Um, and that's really nice. And I feel like in the next like year or two, I'm going to exceed that, but (laughs) well, we're good for right now. So that project started again, I think like November of 2022 and finished up in like January, February ish, uh, is when I kind of started moving in. And initially I kind of thought about like, do I move my existing machines in there? Do I put new CNC machines in there? What I ended up deciding on was to use the room for kind of like only storage of stuff that doesn't directly like increase the bottom line, if that makes sense. So like it's all vital equipment. We've got like our fixture storage in there, our chip storage, uh, my two lasers. So like the CO2 laser I use for packaging as well as like our fiber laser for part marking, our 3D printer and a little assembly area. And then all of our manual equipment, like our surface grinder, manual lathe, all that kind of stuff just kind of got pushed into that room. Cause what I realized is that room is the furthest from the garage door. So getting machines in there while technically possible, is it really annoying? 
And so you've got the to have ceilings sp- lower too, right? Yeah, by I think like four feet. Yeah, because it it feels much shorter when you're in there. Yeah, I think it's like I think it's like a ten foot ceiling, and our normal shop is like a fourteen foot ceiling. Um. So yeah, so we kind of just moved all of our like ancillary equipment in there, just because it was kind of made sense to then just free up space in the main shop. Um, and then very shortly thereafter, we filled the rest of the main shop. Um, so we kind of, so we freed up a bunch of space and we kind of started looking around at like right at the, almost exactly at the same time when we were about to be ready to move in. Um, I started really focusing on kind of what bottlenecks we were having in the shop, um, moving through the, the kind of work that we were. And what I realized is that our current bottleneck was milling. So it was like parts would come out of the lathes and they would need like one to two mill ops. And then they would not, they would just sit and wait on carts. And so the lathe would keep pumping out parts and the mills would, or the, the singular brother speedio was kind of just bottlenecked. And so from IMTS where I think I talked on the like IMTS wrap up episode kind of thing. I had talked pretty heavily about getting a brother M 200 kind of like started really second guessing that right at the beginning of the year thinking like, I don't know if I want to be the Guinea pig kind of thing for this. And so we thought about it a lot and we ended up deciding to get just a almost identical machine. Um, just the updated with the D zero zero control and the 28 tools. So that was kind of an easy decision. Uh, probably one of the easiest, like to decide machines to buy. And then kind of also then decided right at that same time, the other major bottleneck was to inspection parts because over the last kind of year, we moved from some more, more production oriented jobs to a lot of more high mix, low volume. Um, and a lot of the parts we've been making are fairly tight tolerance with a lot of like GD and T and having to just do a lot of inspections on a surface plate with a sign plate, checking angularity and checking positions with angle plates and things like that. So it was just a lot of like hard inspection that we were doing. Um, was adding up to like probably hours a day we were spending just looking at individual parts. So it kind of made sense right at that time of like, finally, like let's pull the trigger and get a CMM. Um, I didn't really shop around too much. Kind of knew that I didn't really like PC Demos from school and Calypso seemed a little bit better. I got like a brief demo of Calypso from the applications engineer. Um, so intuitive. <laughs> I won't get into that. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll talk about that. The, uh, um, so we kind of got a, oh, sorry, let me, let me go back a little bit further too. Cause I guess there's one major update that I kind of missed is ended up hiring my first employee um, back in September, like literally like five days before I MTS, I hired my first employee. So Matt is probably listening to this. So, um, not going to say too much cause I know he doesn't want that, but Matt is uh, an old coworker of mine from a previous job that is just an excellent machinist. 
and pretty cool person to work with. So it was kind of a no brainer to hire him. So we kind of both like took a look at Calypso looked like something that we could do. We kind of both thought it was the right decision. So pulled the trigger on at the same time as the new Speedio to pick up the Zeist Duramax. Um, and the Speedio showed up first. I think the Speedio showed up on March 1st um, is when it showed up. And then it got installed shortly thereafter. Um, I don't think there was really anything dramatic about that install. Um, it's pretty much a basic machine. It's just got like all your standard features, probing, TSC, etc. The uh, really nice thing is we kind of just this time around, it wasn't like a machine purchase of like, oh, can I afford this? It was more of just like, I need a machine now. And right. so it was like the first time I didn't really sting out on any options. I just kind of went down the list and was like, yep, 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 yep on all the options. And so we ended up buying the the TSC straight from Yamazon, which I don't regret that TSC is really nice. It's thousand PSI um, because the, the newer machines are rated for that. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty much your, your bog standard three axis brother. I think everyone on this podcast is probably really tired about hearing about those. <laughs> um, well, it, it is nice though. Like you're talking about optioning it, optioning it out and it's like, Oh, they're all dual contact now. So like that, you didn't have to deal with like, yeah. Oh, do I spend eight grand on a, an upgrade for the spindle and all that? It's like, it just is what it is. Yeah. I think the only thing we kind of really like, we thought about not doing right away. And I'm, I'm actually really glad we didn't was getting a fourth axis again. Um, and cause I thought like, well, we, we really like the fourth axis on our other machine, but like, do we need it on the new one? Ah, let's save the like 20 grand ish to get another fourth axis and we can always get it later. And I think at this point we fully decided not to get another one. Um, sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but like, it's really nice just having a machine that's wide open. Just that like there's and, no clearances. I mean, your most recent machine kind of would overlap that a little bit. Yeah, but there's also just like it's wide open. So like if we do for some reason, uh, if let me clarify, if I am stupid enough to quote a plate job or something um, and we need a machine to run it on, we're not worried about like running into the fourth or anything. We can just kind of run it. Totally. Um, so that's been really nice is just having an open bed machine. There's no clearance issues. There's two just orange vices in there. Um, so we got that machine and then we got the CMM and we got the CMM was in this beautiful cardboard box and it stayed in that beautiful cardboard box for about a month because it turns out you're not allowed to open the CMM until the service tech arrives. And so the service tech was scheduled about a month out. So we actually ended up going doing the Calypso training down in Chicago for the week before we even got to open our own CMO. And then we got back and there was still like two weeks before the service tech showed up. So that was a little bit interesting, but our dealer was actually really great about it. They kind of apologized to us pretty heavily. And like we had a job that was somewhere in there that really needed some inspection and they drove about an hour and a half to our shop every morning to pick up parts, drove them back to their showroom, inspected them, drove them back by the end of the day, handed us inspection reports, and repeated that for three days straight. So concept machine tools, 
handled that situation very well. They kind of got blindsided, it sounds like, from Zeiss, where they didn't realize that Zeiss was going to be dragging their feet this hard. Um, so that was really professional. It was a really positive experience working with those guys. Um, That's killer. That is definitely a rarity nowadays, it feels like. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild how like you can spend as much money as you want and you can still feel like nobody really wants to help you. And I thought that was really professional that concept really handled that well for us. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of the covers the beginning of the year. And, and we're, we've had one of those years where like, there's not a single slowdown point. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse kind of thing. And so it, it's, it's a game of like kind of dealing with that, but like, it's cool to see that like it directly did work because what it was, was I think that the chain of events that kind of occurred as far as I'm kind of thinking back on it is we hired Matt and Matt pushed it so that the bottleneck wasn't me for once. And then showed us that the bottleneck was that I could be making the parts in the lathe or that Matt could be making the parts in the lathe or any of the three lathes kind of thing. And that pushed it over towards the mills again. And then once it was at the mills, that was the bottleneck. And so we thought, well, let's let's push this over back towards the lathes again. And the other side of it was every single day when Matt's doing these inspections and I'm doing these inspections, I'm just doing the inspection. And every single day, Matt comes back into the inspection room and goes, man, be really easy to check this on a CMM. <laughs> Are Man, you saying that Matt peer pressured you into a CMM? Yeah. Wow. This really should be checked on a CMM. Wow, this would be a lot easier to check on a CMM. And it's like, you know what? Fine, let's 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 buy a CMM. And he wasn't <laughs> wrong. And it was just I was holding out and was like, this is really expensive and but you know what? It ended up being the right choice and it immediately started paying for itself. And the fact that like our inspection times were cut in half. And it's, I think this is like a, this is a little bit of a hot take that I think both of us share is like CMMs are not the answer to being more accurate or better at making parts. We were making parts just as well as we do now that we have the CMM. We were inspecting them just as thoroughly. Like you can do, I think that the biggest thing that I tell people is like, do you think they use a CMM to check the injector plates on like the Saturn five? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't. And it's like, do you think those are accurate parts? Like they, they literally have to be They're They're the thing that, I mean, they're making them on a bridge port. They were still inspecting them. Yeah. You watch, do you think like Robin Renzetti or, or Robin Renzetti or Adam Demuth or, Stefan, none of those guys have CMMs. Right, those yeah, they just have making... hidden CMMs. None of us have ever seen. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I think a CMM is, it's another tool in the toolbox. It's not the end-all be-all. It's, it's, yeah. if well, and you I think blindly the, trust the them. Counterpoint to that, or like the the thing that has to go along with that too, is not only is it another tool, but it is a a true garbage-in, garbage-out tool. So like, if you don't have a good foundation in metrology and understanding gd and t you can make your parts look good no matter what like just by applying the wrong filters or like 
purposefully applying the wrong filters. So all of a sudden all your data looks good. It's it's bizarre how easily it is. I mean, even in Calypso, the most intuitive software ever, um, you can uh, you can cause it to like create bad information. But like, so the the bigger factor for us was not that we were checking things that we couldn't check without a CMM, or that our customers were asking us for CMM reports. So I get that a question a lot from other shops is like, oh, did you get it because your customer required it? No, I honestly only like two engineers at the company that we do a lot of work for know that I even have one. Like that's not something we we don't I mean, I think we list it on our website, but it's not like broadcast out there of like, hey, come get your free CMM report kind of thing. Like it's, right, exactly. it's the the bigger factor is like, well, A, we can offer CMM reports if the customer does want them. But B, it was just to kind of speed up what we were already doing. And just give us that like little bit of a faster way to check stuff. And so we picked that guy up. We went and did our Calypso training and really quickly realized that the the thing that the Zeiss reps always tell you that Calypso is so intuitive and Calypso is just like, it's, it's not bad. It's, you can totally do it. If you've used a CNC machine or you've used cam software, my best description is it's pretty much like feature-based cam. Um, it's kind of like using feature cam or cam works, but it's not intuitive. I don't, I don't think there's anything in machining that's intuitive. I think it's a kind of a blatant lie that they tell you that. I mean, there is a learning curve. I'm still learning how to use the machine. The training nearly melted my brain. I haven't done that. It just kind of started us off on some statistics and I'm like, wow, I haven't taken a statistics class in a long time. (laughs) I am very rusty on this kind of thing. And I'll say that like you taught us how to program a part, like we did the zometry test part you had lying around or whatever. And when I was there and it is, I'd say easy. Like it's very easy coming from like PC Demos because you're like, Oh, I don't have to plan path points or anything or move points, but it is definitely not intuitive because there was like parts where I'm like trying to click a button. You're like, no, 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 no. You have to hit like a key on the keyboard and it doesn't tell you anywhere in the software that this is what you have to hit, but this is what you have to hit to do it. I'm like, yeah, cool. Yeah. Super intuitive. There's all sorts of stuff. Like you can't right click on certain things or you have to use the delete key because you can't right click delete and like copying and pasting stuff is super weird. And there's tons of stuff, but like overall, I mean, I, Definitely don't hate it every time I use it like I did when I was using PC Demos. The only I have pretty limited CMM experience. I've used PC Demos in school, and then at a shop I used to work at, they had a Hellmill CMM, and that thing had GeoMet, which was not good but not bad. <laughs> right. It was kind of like using a DRO. Okay. It wasn't. It it wasn't atrocious. Let's just put it that way. So Geomet, like it felt really underpowered. Calypso feels way better than PC Demos to me, but not underpowered like Geomet. So again, that was just kind of the beginning of the year. It really got us through a pretty tough job at the beginning of the year. We we started the the year out with a fifty-two part number um job of like three or four parts each and every single one of these parts was 
just ridiculously overtoleranced, difficult right. to manufacture. Like, yeah, let's see. MM earned its keep very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it right away helped us. I guess to clarify, it didn't help us. It would have helped us because we we just barely finished up the job by the time the CMM came online. Um, but it so was frustrating. <laughs> I I don't know. Kind of I don't remember who originally told me this or where I learned this from, but I think somebody along the line in my career kind of taught me like if there's a tool that would have made the job easier, you should buy it after the job is complete. That's like the first thing you should use that money for. Because it's not like that jobs for for us, the job never comes back. Um, although actually I had I had three jobs this week come back. Oh, that's which I crazy. thought was really wild. <laughs> Uh, right, like but the job made might not come back, but that type of part will come back. Exactly. Like features like, are, it's very rare that you see a unique feature that you'll never see again. And, and I know we got Pat talking about blocks with holes. Everything I make is a circle with holes. It's a circle with holes or a circle with slots or, I mean, everything we do is, we've made a name for ourselves, whatever that me- actually means. We've sort of made a name for ourselves of doing lathe parts. And so everything I make, for the most part, is a round part. And so our speedios make round parts for the most part. Um, and we, we just do a lot of like parts that kind of the size of a fist that have turned and milled features. It's kind of my bread and butter kind of thing. And totally, I'm also not the best at saying no. So I end up with parts that are like six times diameter in Teflon like three eighths of an inch thick with a bunch of slots, that kind of thing. And like, it's become a game of just like, I figured out ways of doing these parts and my employees figured out ways of doing these parts that like, they don't bother us that much. So that's kind of where we make our money kind of thing of just, that's our niche. And I think that's an important lesson for other businesses that I also think has been driven home on this podcast is don't be the guy in your garage with a VF2. Right. yeah, you, you can you can totally do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, if you want to like, if you want to keep going further and further down the rabbit hole, eventually you're going to need to find something that you do that nobody else does. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I want to make that point that like, if you want to do that as a hobby, go for it. Like, that's great. Do whatever. But like, if you want to grow a business, finding your niche and specializing it is like where you have to be. I think that's like really important because it's like you might look at a shop like like yours or, or mine and you're like, oh, well, you have you have lathes and mills like you can do both or whatever. Or like your shop where it's three and four axis mills like, oh, you must make blocks with holes. But having been <laughs> to your really. shop and <laughs> yeah, having been to your shop and seen some of the parts you've made, like I, I don't even know how you make that. Like it's you make <laughs> stuff that nobody else would touch and that's where you make your money. And so I think that's an important thing. Like anyone who's listening to this podcast, trying to start a business. I know it's like, it's not easy to find a weird machine or like, I think it's also a lot of guys jump into, well, I don't, I can't do that part because I don't have a six axis lathe. I think a really good example is if you need another example beyond like what I do. Look at like Evan from Alton instruments. Like for years, that dude was making the same exact parts he's making now, 
but on a two axis Mori lathe from like 1703 <laughs> and a medium bed robo drill. I mean, right. I did yeah. that for years with uh, my Miano that unfortunately we'll, we'll get there, but eventually if I stop talking. <laughs> well, I, I want to point out too that I'm not saying, and I don't think Easton's saying either, you have to specialize right away. Like we both did the thing of saying yes to everyone and doing a bunch of stuff we shouldn't. I think that's what you're saying is like you can do a lot just on basic equipment and it's through that grind of like, oh, I hate these kind of parts. I don't want to do these anymore. Oh, I actually really like these kind of weird parts. And that's where you find your niche. I'm not saying that like right out of the get-go, you should be like, oh, I am a small parts manufacturer. Like you might hate that. You might get into it and be like, oh, I'm not equipped for this at all. Or like, oh, I want to do big parts. And then you buy a VF11 or something. You're like, oh man, I have no way of getting parts into the machine. Like I firmly think that you need to try a lot of things and figure out what you like. I'm just saying that as you go on, you need to niche down. Well, so that was part of what I was saying, but I was also saying like I was making the same parts I'm making today on a two axis lathe and a three axis mill Yeah, because it forces, it doesn't, it's not easy. It's not fun to make a part with like angled holes coming in at different angles or a bolt circle that's clocked to a tapped hole on one side. It's like, it's not fun. But you can totally do it if you get creative with fixturing or like you learn very quickly that an angle grinder cuts through a gauge pin easily. Um, and like, So does a Dremel with yeah. a cutoff wheel. Just yeah, exactly. FYI. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like creative and like you can make all of these parts. You don't need a six axis sub spindle Y axis lathe. I see. I think there's so many people that just get so enamored with that or like the next most one is like, oh, I need a five axis. Well, maybe you do, but like, have you considered that, like, so you can, I, there's two ways to think about this. You can either jump into it and dump all your cash and then you have a short runway or you can slowly build up that runway and then jump headfirst into it knowing that you're like financially secure. I think that's like a really big lesson that I think a lot of people don't realize or like people jump right to, oh, my next machine is going to be a Williman. Right. Like, do you think that, like, I don't know, I'm like firmly, obviously agreeing with you, but I also keep having to think like, well, is that survivorship bias? Because we're both doing well right now. (laughs) Like, um, that's a very good point. I I don't know if I I don't know if I'm just doing the whole survivorship bias. That's that's a very valid question. But I think it's it's worked out really well for me. Obviously, it's worked out really well for you of just kind of clawing your way out of a hole and. I think there's a lot of lessons that you learn by crawling out of that hole that are really hard lessons to learn later on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, well, it, it's hard to, to learn the jank cheaply on a expensive five axis or on a six axis lathe or something like that. Like you can make mistakes on a dumb early machine in your career and figure out the janky stuff that works versus like, well, if I, I do something janky and I break my spindle on this, you know, Kern or Hermla, or, you know, GF or whatever, it's like, that could be twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. Like, that's scary. Well, and, and I think there's even beyond that, like, just think about, like, time-wise. Nowadays, do you have time to spend 10 days on a job trying to dial in a single hole? 
No. <laughs> and it's no, like, not at all. but earlier on in your career, when you have less going on, there's tons of time. You have more time than you have money. And now that you have more money than time, the switch flips. But I think learning some of these lessons on the fly is really hard. And I'm glad that I kind of went the route I did. I'm glad that I'm not struggling like that anymore. I'm, not, I'm glad there aren't days where I've got $400 in my bank account kind of thing. And I'm looking at the next material order and it's $350 that I have to spend on material. And I'm like, huh, uh-huh. hopefully I get paid tomorrow. Right. Like, yeah. I'm glad I'm not at that point in my business anymore, but it's, it's, it's a different set of problems. It's the the further you grow and everything like that. And it's, just kind of a game of like, it's, it's when people say, oh, they're going to solve all of their bottlenecks. You can't do that. All you're doing is playing a game of ping pong kind of thing. And that's what we've been doing all year. And finally I got the ball back to where I started the late uh, at the last. No, no, no. Myself. Okay, good. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um. So anyways, so we ended up kind of coasting through the year then from Roughly April on coasting. Um, That's what you want to call this year. <laughs> That's hey, a, you know what? All right, it, you know it feels like it feels like you're floating when all you're doing is drinking caffeine and staying up till two a.m. every night. <laughs> yeah, you're the ship that's just coasting through tsunami waters through the rest of the year. Right? Okay. Um, so anyway, <laughs> you've coasted through the rest of the year, and then let's talk about your most recent purchase. Yeah. So we. <laughs> It was a lot of just staying till 2 a.m. every single night, grinding out jobs. And probably about mid-year, I realized we really need to buy a lathe by the end of the year. Um, so I kind of started shopping around. And I, I'm let me very make it clear. We did end up with what the, the logical, like, classic, what you would expect out of Moria Manufacturing Purchase. However... I did keep an open mind, even though it doesn't seem like I did. Um, and I know that we, we got a couple podcast questions about that. So I realized pretty early on um, that we needed to get another lathe. And so it came down to we needed to get a lathe that matches the quality of our two existing kind of traditional turning centers. So we have Nakamura SC250 which is like a box way hand scraped. Um, I think it's technically a four axis lathe because there's no C2 axis and no Y axis, but it does have a sub spindle. It does have milling. It just doesn't have a Y axis and you can't do like interpolated milling on the sub spindle. Um, you could drill like a hole by indexing the sub, but you can't do like polar milling on the sub. So gotcha. we've had that machine for, wow, two and a half years. Jeez. That's insane. <laughs> I remember just getting that thing. Yeah, um, me too. I remember when you got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we do have a few questions. Demi from the Patreon was asking, what other machines were you debating and what made you choose this one? Yeah. So we, we had the Nakamura and then we had a 1987. Oh, and that guy's a 2005 SC250. So it's like a two and a half inch bar capacity like I said, like four axis ish lathe, maybe five axis. I don't really know how you consider that thing. Um, just a 12 station turret, blah, 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 blah. And then we had a 1987 
um, Miano BNC. That was kind of the first lathe that really kicked off my business. It was the lathe that like got me down the stupid rabbit hole that I'm in, which is the customer says, oh, this needs to be plus or minus two thou. And I say, oh yeah, no problem. That's easy. I can, I can do that. And come to find out that that was kind of because I had a lathe that as I was kind of packing it up to get, to say bye to it, I found a drawing of in the original sales brochure that says the spindle runout should be point point two micron uh, circularity on the spindle. Right. Yeah. Which it was is insane. like it's an insanely accurate machine, and I'm not the only one to say that because it's like I've had a couple people in my shop make parts on that lathe, just friends or my employee kind of thing. It is insane how accurate that machine was 35 years later you could hold pretty comfortably like sub one tenth over an eight hour period on a lathe that was made before rigid tapping existed so it's not relying on thermal comp it's not relying on like a chiller it's not doing any of that there's none of the like it's just a block of cast iron that cannot move yeah, and the coolant tank is in the casting and like like everything is designed around just like keeping it hot and staying hot and running parts. Well, and then and this is the this is where this is important information to kind of go into the discussion of like we ended up buying was there wasn't like I've ran maze accolades where and you talk to people with akumos and things like that where it's like oh yeah, it's super 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 accurate once you get it hot. The Miano was accurate from the time you turn it on to the time you turn it off. And part of that is we do keep our shop pretty thermally stable. I think we never see more than like a five degree swing in our shop. It used to be like a two degree swing and then we got that shop expansion and now we've got more thermal mass to kind of keep track of and our AC is pretty undersized. But again, we would turn it on in the morning and you tell it to cut a diameter and it's the same diameter it was cutting at 2 p.m. the previous afternoon with no comp. Just one of the most accurate machines I've ever touched in my life. And our Nakamura was pretty close to that. Our knock moves a little bit more than the Miano did, but it's also like three times the size. And yeah, so it, it was shocking when I was there. Like you taught us. You were having us stick around on the Zeiss, and then you're like, oh, I got to go run a part real quick. And you run one, you're like, oh, it's a little undersized, and then you fix it. And I'm like, oh, like, what are the tolerances? You're like, oh, it's like plus or minus a couple tenths. I was like, you just turned on that machine. Like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, I'm going to run a couple, and then I'll, we'll go ship them later. I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's great. And that's, that. That's like I said, that that's the thing that we got into that, like, our customers expect out of us now. And so that's why we've, been so on top of our inspection game because we are checking stuff that is like you breathe on it and it changes um and we're doing it in materials that you shouldn't be doing it in um and so that miano has been a game changer for us it's been since the day i got it kind of thing but it was 35 years old it was only bar capacity of like an inch and a quarter so we could only run small parts in that machine. It was a two axis lathe, which again, 
works totally fine. You can still do second ops in the mill. That's why we have a speedio kind of thing. But it was just like a lot of like things were we running into that we ended up leaving that machine off for weeks at a time because it was easier just to do it in the the larger machine. And our work kind of shifted from that like sub one inch parts to more of a two, like an inch and a half to three inch size. And that's really where we've kind of stayed pretty steady now. And so it was time to replace the Miano. So we looked around and when you think about machines that are going to be able to handle the tolerances and things we can do, you can do, people love to knock on like the tolerances of a Tormach or a Haas. You can do parts this accurate on a Haas. You're just going to be babysitting. And for us, we're doing fast turnaround stuff. We don't have time to babysit. We don't have time to mess with wear offsets. It's just not something I want to deal with. It's not something I've ever had to deal with in my shop. I don't want to start now. So that eliminates a number of machines right off the bat. And not to knock any of these brands of machines. They're they're good machines, but like that knocks immediately off the bat. Doosan, Haas. Well, sorry, to clarify in Doosan, we would be in the Puma series. And at that point, it's the same cost as any of the other ones. It's not like you're saving a bunch of money by going for a Doosan Puma, which is a fantastic machine. But if I'm going to be buying something new, I'd rather just go with something that's kind of more in that game. So that knocks off like Doosan, Haas, Herco, like some of the kind of more standard job shop style brands. And it starts pushing us more into the machines that are considered quote unquote production machines because what I've come to realize is that a production machine just means a machine that's more thermally stable so that you don't have to deal with it, which I don't know why they advertise it that way because it's the same. You need the same thing for doing prototypes. Um, is it more expensive right. to do it for prototypes? Sure. <laughs> then don't, yeah. but like it means that your prototypes, you just need to choose the right prototypes kind of thing. Um, making like a prototype baby bottle, is not something that like is economical to do on a Nakamura or an Akuma, but doing prototype aerospace work, that's very economical to do on the machine because it's tighter tolerance stuff that like really matters. So kind of narrowed it down. And what we ended up kind of looking at were Akuma at like an LB 3000 MYW. Um, we looked at a DMG NLX 2500, and we looked at uh, initially a Nakamura AS200, and we seriously looked at all three of these. The reason we weren't initially looking at when we ended up at is because if you go on Nakamura's website or Methods website, they list the SC300 as tailstock only, or you can get a subspindle if you get the L version, and the L version is like twenty feet long. It's even more of a monster than the one we ended up with. <laughs> and so Which I was you wouldn't talking, have had room for. Like oh, absolutely no. not. No, not yeah. at all. It's it's another like six feet longer than the one we ended up with. Um so we talked to methods and we were talking about the AS two hundred. And what's really funny is the AS two hundred is what they replaced the SC two fifty with. The SC two fifty is still available if you live in Japan. But in the US your choices are like SC100, AS200, 
and then like SC300, SC450 kind of thing. They just oh, skip weird. the 250 because the 250 is the same size as the AS. The issue is, is the AS is made in Korea. It's linear guide on most of the axes except for this. The X and Y axis are still box. And it's it's funny because you talk to you listen to like the business of machining and, and Grimsmo's like, yeah, and it moves, I don't know, like two thou throughout the day. And I'm like, huh. Yeah, my knock doesn't do that. Right. You're like, my older knock doesn't do that. That's I'm like, terrifying. That's, and so like I'm talking to the the methods guys and the apps guy always is like, oh, show us a print. So I show him a couple of prints and, and the guy goes, huh, you're you're doing this on a lathe instead of grinding? And I'm like, yep, it works totally fine on our SC. He's like, <laughs> let's 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 take a look at the other options that we've got. And and it was, I had the same conversation with with Akuma too, because like Akuma was like, oh, you should get the Genos, blah 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 blah. And then I like showed them a print. And they're like, yeah, so let's look at the non Genos machines. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay. So we were looking at the Akuma LB3000 MYW, like I said, the NLX2500. The uh, Akuma, we ended up actually going to Mercury Marine, which was awesome, by the way. We got to get a cool tour of Mercury Marine, which is just an army of Akumas and Mazaks. And the machine was making some crazy parts. They were making some crazy parts on that machine. I know Evan really likes his. But the two common themes I notice, one, 50% of Evan's stories are, oh, and then I have to remove this tool because it's going to hit here in the machine. And two, at Mercury Marine, I looked at the turret and I was like, what's the max gauge length on a live tool? Because that's a major problem on our current knock or on our, our older knock, I, sh- I should get in the habit of saying. Um and so I said, what's the max gauge length? They're like, well, it depends on whether or not you do an X shift off of the home before you swing the turret. And I was like, guys, I've told you like 15 times that I want to make prototypes with this machine. I do not have time to like hand program second home position for well, a you tool asked change. Them, didn't you? Weren't you like, oh, does it do it that do it does it do it automatically? And they were like, no. I don't remember what the answer, they gave me some really wishy-washy answer that you could like do it with macros or something. And it's like, yeah, that's really cool. But I, at this point, post almost everything out of cam. And it's not that I like can't hand program things or won't hand program things. But if that's like, that's your solution, that kind of pushed it out of the, the ball game. And to be honest, I'm also not a big fan of OSP. Um, So that kind of put them in rocky water and in the first place kind of thing like a os lb3000 is genuinely a very good competitor um i I think we would have been happy with it i think it was just like well this is going to be an entirely new control in the shop it's going to be an entirely new vendor in the shop and we kind of just like looked at it and wasn't a good fit so we moved on from there so then at that point, I guess it was down to the NLX 2500 or the now, because they had informed me that you could get the SC300 with a sub, um, was the Nakamura SC300. 
the NLX made it pretty much up till the end. I think we would have been really happy with the NLX. Um, we got some time to kind of play with it. It seemed really nice. It was honestly quieter than my SC300 that I ended up with because it's all built-in motor. And they really were selling me on the fact that it was built-in motor and that you could get 10,000 RPM live tooling, which was really nice. There were a lot of really nice features on that machine. It had tons of clearance. Um, what finally made the decision was, and I guess we'll get into this further with the question from Joe, but NT Nurse is something that uh, Nakamura has had for like 30 years. Our older knock has it. The newer one has a even more version of like a, a more pronounced version of it, but it's kind of what Nakamura calls all their like special functions. And one of their special functions that I definitely have not tested on my own um, is not. called airbag. And a lot of people are going to listen to this and go, Oh yeah, my machine has that. It doesn't. Uh, unless you have a Nakamura, um, you might think it does think, oh, my Haas has that because you saw it at IMTS or your Haas does have it. It doesn't. Um, airbag is this very weird thing. I do not understand how Nakamura does it. It is definitely one of their trade secrets. Your machine bounces off if you crash it. And what I mean by that is literally bounces off. Um, you can full wrap it into the chuck. You can feed into the chuck. You can do any move you do. If you are crashing, the machine somehow knows the difference between crashing and cutting. That's just in Z though, right? Or is that also? It's. I think it's in Z for sure. It's B as well. Your subspindle will do it. And the new one might do it in X, Y, Z, B but it for sure does it in Z, which is where a lot of your crashes will happen. And so like what it does, and it's, it's hard to describe this. There's, there's videos you can look it up. I don't know if that's worth putting in the show notes or not, but we'll hit, you usually break an insert or kick your tool out, but within like, I think they say like two milliseconds or like half a millisecond. I don't, I don't even know what it is it will reverse the screw and go the other direction from the servo load. And so it's not going to save your part. It's not going to save your tool, but it will save your spindle. It will save your like turret from needing a realignment. And like, I had a couple people say, tell me like in messages and things when I've talked to them, like, Oh no, my machine has that, but it didn't work because uh, I did it at 50% rapid and it only works at hundred percent. Nope. It works at, any speed, whatever. And so I've had that on my machine. And like I said, I've definitely not tested that. I definitely don't know that that works. Um, yeah, that's why you made sure to buy a machine with it because you definitely haven't tested it before. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <I gotcha. laughs> and so like, I mean, again, it's especially apparent because there's this kind of, I guess, quote unquote bug infusion. Although fusion doesn't really believe that this is a bug. There's a checkbox in the tool creation page where you can check that checks whether or not it's a live tool or a static tool. And by default, it is checked as a live tool, which means, and again, your post processor for your Haas VF2 or whatever, 
doesn't care if that checkbox is checked. But on a lathe, if that checkbox is checked, it locks your C-axis and pretends or thinks it can drill. And the way most live tooling turrets work, it has no way of knowing if you have a live tool loaded in the turret or not. And so what I've had crash several times on the Ahura is you forget to uncheck that box when creating a tool and it comes in and you don't catch it and it tries to plow a drill, a static drill at zero RPM into your part. And the tip of the drill touches and it bounces off. And that's so awesome. I asked DMG, I said, okay, so built-in spindle motor, 30 grand. Built-in spindle motor on the sub, 30 grand. Built-in spindle motor on the turret, 30 grand. What happens when any of those get crashed? And DMG's response is, oh, it's a really rigid machine. And I said, okay, what if I crash it full rapid? And they said, just don't do that. <laughs> I said, all right. But what that's happens a really when I do? rigid machine. That's such an interesting question, or such an interesting answer to that question. And they they were, I mean, they're right. Like, they were like, oh, well, if you really crash it, we'll have a service tech out there tomorrow or whatever, because, like, we're two hours away. Like, they were doing a really good job of selling it. They weren't doing a bad job. And I was like, okay, but there's, to clarify, there's nothing that will actually stop the crash from damaging the machine. And they were like, well, you mean, like, crash protection? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we can do that. It's a factory order, eight months. It's like, okay, well, that's not not what I asked. And so that was the final deciding factor was I really did like the NLX to be completely like uh, the NLX was probably 30 grand cheaper than the knock that we ended up with. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I thought it was more expensive. I, the NLX is the Nihonora that we ended up buying is probably one of the most expensive six axis lathes you can buy. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good quality. It's just, it happened to be one of the more expensive ones we looked at. Um, well, let's walk through what options and all the specs of the machine you oh, bought. Then. Yeah. So I guess, I, I don't know if I've fully said this, presuming that most of your listeners are on Instagram, but if they're not what I had, what we ended up buying was a, Nakamura Tome SC300. So it's a single turret, twin spindle, um, live tool lathe. So Nakamura only sells live tool lathes. They're, they don't even have any non-live tool lathes anymore. Um, it's got, so I guess, Z1, X1, Y1, C1, C2, and B. So it's a six-axis full like lathe. It's kind of what everyone thinks about when they think of like a multi-axis lathe, pretty much no frill options. Really. We got a, um, we got the, sorry, we got a fire trace because we do run oil in our shop, uh, in all of our mills or sorry, in all of our lathes. Um, we got a large spindle bore option, which I think is like, pretty much the only ones they bring in the U S so it's a three and a half inch through bore. Uh, we got the, wow, I'm really spacing on all the options. We got tool setter. That was an option. This is kind of an interesting topic, I guess. Most Japanese machines, if you buy like the higher end ones, there are no options. 
It's just kind of, you get what you get and you will like it. And <laughs> that was pretty much what this machine was. It was like, you look at the software options. I mean, I can pull up my quote, but I think we only got like three options. I think most right. of our most options, of your options were, are like related to bar feeders or conveyors or tooling wise, stuff like that. Yeah. Right? I think most of our options were tooling wise. Like we ended up going with dead length Heinbuch. I'm probably butchering that Heinbuch chucks. Uh, and we went with a bunch of live tools that came with the machine. Cause like for as expensive of a machine, like 30 of a million dollars, you don't get any live tools, which is pretty funny. That's still pay us more money. And then you can maybe have the option to use live tools. And then again, I think the only other options were we got a mist collector and a fire trace, but it's a pretty full featured lathe. Other than that, the tool setter is fairly unique. I found out after getting it uh, and talking to other owners. I think there's a lot of people who see the way knock does it and say, the uh, the spindle, or sorry, the, the tool setter, a lot of people think of that thing as like a, um, a downside because, oh my God, it's not in the machine always. You have to take it out of the box and install it. Can you yeah, believe so that? Give I me your hot do... take about tool setters <laughs> because we, we've talked about this ad nauseum. So I don't um, know if this is necessarily a hot take. I just don't, I don't see a downside to it and I don't see an upside. I mean, I see a small upside to it and I see a small downside to it. So I think there's a very valid thing when people are like, oh, you need to uh, have a tool setter that you can flip down to do tool breakage detection. Okay, that that makes sense. I mean, if you don't have, that's another one of the NT nurse functions. Like they have cutoff detection where they desynchronize the spindles um, by like one phase and they check if there's any torque between the spindles and it tells you, is your parting blade still there or not? You can do like G131 like torque checks to see if stuff is still there. I think Grimsmo was using that on uh, like an old video when he was still making his knife screws in the machine. He would use like a T9 torque spit as a tool breakage detection. There's ways around it. Would it be nice to have it flipped down? Absolutely. However, what... The reason I've heard that Nakamura doesn't do that is because the inside of a lathe is a pretty harsh environment. You've got like 1,000 PSI coolant or oil spraying everywhere and hot chips. And you then have a kinematic coupling, which I know you talk to anyone who owns a Datron, eventually that thing wears out. And the end stop is no longer repeatable. So would it be nice to have it flipped down? Sure. Is it actually a pain in the ass to like change out the tool arm? No, it's it's less it's a you take it out of the box, you take a cap off the thing, you stick it onto the wall, and you quarter turn a knob. And it means that your twelve thousand dollar tool setter is protected and outside of the machine. It means there's one less kinematic joint that has to be like repeatable, and it is like, um, it's just a pretty simple system. But what I also found out that was kind of unique about this is it's the same arm for both the main spindle and sub spindle, which I think is, I thought that was pretty normal. Turns out that's not. 
And mine looks like, in, and I might post a picture on Instagram to clarify this. It looks like a hammerhead shark. Um, so you have two tool setters next to each other, like actual probes themselves in like a hammerhead shark shape. And so when you put the arm in on the main spindle, one of them is facing up. And when you put it in on the sub spindle, the other one's facing up. So that's how they do that. And then you just calibrate each one. Um, it's pretty nice so far. I was kind of expecting like, I mean, usually a Fanuc supporter, but my kind of gut reaction was like, okay, let's see how this goes. I don't know how tool setter on Fanuc is going to be. Um, like I'm expecting to have to like pull up macro programs and things like that, or do something in MDI. Nope. When you put the tool setter in, the machine locks out and only shows you the offsets page. And it actually only shows you the current tool that's loaded. And then you jog it close to the probe and you hold the jog key in the axis direction you want to probe and it saves it into the offsets. And then you jog it away, pull your arm out, put it back in the box, you're done takes like less than 30 seconds to touch off a tool. So it's nice. really not bad. Yeah, that's not bad at all. Well, let's get into some of the questions for you about that. Demi also asked both of us, can you name a few things that make or break the functionality of a machine tool for you in terms of like clearance, chip management, layout, functionality, options, etc.? Yeah, um, I guess the first one is reliability. It's, you might not think it's a big deal when, oh, well, software crashed. I got to turn it off, turn it back on. No big deal. It only takes 30 seconds to do that. Yeah, but that's also really interrupting in your workflow. It makes you start not trusting your equipment. Bottom line, I want to be able to trust my equipment. And if I don't trust it, it's not coming in my shop. Yeah. And so that's a big one for me is just sheer, like dead reliability. Um, serviceability is a big one. Uh, I guess I'm moving a little bit away from that being as important for me now that I usually call a service tech rather than do it myself. But like that used to be a bigger factor for me is like, how easy is it for me to take this apart and fix it? Um, well, and I'd say that that translates to something that's really important for me, which is service for the machine. Like how reliable is the organization servicing the machine? How quickly do they respond? Do they do the right thing when they're cor- like they're backed into a corner or they're they're dealing with something they haven't seen before? Like that is insanely important, especially when you have a one-off machine in your uh, shop, like a good friend of ours referred to five axis machines as a liability. And I think that that also applies to like things like your now SC 300. It's the only one that can do certain things. So if it's down, it's a big deal. It's not like, Oh, I'll just go throw it on the other one. Like when I got my second brother, I was like, whew, all right, I've got two, like one can go down. I'm good. You know, at like now, if you've got a part that you're running on the SC 300, and it goes down, you're like, all right, now I need to convert that to an SC250 program and maybe a fourth axis program on the brother. And, you know, it's a big well, deal. Or like, I have to take the collet chuck out of the SC250 and put a three jaw in because it's a three inch diameter part now. 
Yeah, exactly. Things like that. So no, I mean that's that's a really big one. Um let's see. Chip evacuation is one that nobody talks about. Oh, I just make two parts. It's just a prototype. I don't need chip evacuation. Or even worse, I see people buy lathes without a chip conveyor. It's like, what 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 are you doing? And like I don't know. I mean, not every machine needs a chip conveyor. Like the, the speedios do totally fine without a chip conveyor. Well, you say um, that, but I was just, just about to say, I wish I had bought like, well, I wish I had had room for conveyors, but I wish I had bought them. Like how yeah. many times have both of us sent pictures of flooded floors because no, no, no. Enough chips have built up on the doors right there as they exit the back chute and it's flowed over. And like, it takes five seconds to go remedy it. But if I had a conveyor, it probably wouldn't happen. <laughs> Well, no, that's, that's actually, that's valid too. I, I just mean in the sense of like chip evacuation is such afterthought from everyone. It's like, yeah, for sure. And it's not just about, oh, do you have a conveyor or not? That's not chip evacuation. How do your chips get into the conveyor? Um, like I see so many machines where, oh, well, we have a conveyor or like the conveyor on my older knock. It's so narrow and small you get at any kind of rat's nest. So cutting, I don't know, like Nitronic 60, where you can't get it to break a chip sometimes on a finish pass or aluminum with oil. It's the stringy chips just can't pass through the conveyor. So I fit, I have a broomstick that's labeled the stick of destiny that is <laughs> next to the machine. If you need to push the chips through and it's like, I shouldn't need that. This conveyor is not designed for this machine. Like this is not well thought out. And I think the brothers do a really good job of that for the most part of like this down and out kind of mentality of like everything flows down to the center and out through the back. Yeah. I will say that. I will say that inside the enclosure, the speedios do an excellent job. Like you can turn on the wash down and get 98% of the chips out of the machine. No problem. And and I think that's just like an afterthought. Like, I mean, the classic example is the UMC 500. Everybody talks about how bad that is. But like, I think that's, it's an afterthought on a lot of machines. Oh, and, yeah. Well, the, the shop I worked in when I first started machining, all the Kitamuras just had pockets in both sides, of, like on the other side of the table. And there was just grates over it. And so like, we just have to scoop chips. Like there was just no thought of like, oh, this is going to suck for somebody. And it's like, well, it, not me. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it sucked. Like it really was the worst. And there's like this, in any subspindle lathe, there's this like small cavity um, between the turret and the subspindle, like the where the way covers kind of meet. And on my SD250, chips build up in there. And every once in a while, you have to stick something in there and scrape them all out or hope that enough coolant gets back there to kind of just like flush it out. And on the SC300, Nakamura has an entirely separate coolant pump with a nozzle that comes up through those way covers and washes that area out. And this is, again, what I was talking about earlier of like people market them as like um, production production machines. machines. It's like, oh, it's production oriented. like. 
okay, so you don't make chips when you're making prototypes? <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess <laughs> things can just be a pain in the ass when you make prototypes. Yeah, I mean, um, it's like, okay, you save 10 grand, but now you constantly worry about, oh, are there chips in there? Or, well, that's just, that's just the small leak that the machine has because uh, it's not a big deal. We just, we just mop that up every day. Like, right. Do, do you want to be doing that? Is that, is that what you want to be spending your time doing? Yeah. No, I think another thing that's very important for me because we do prototyping is both the UI and like just the interface with the machine itself. Like I think I told you or put, I said it on the podcast we went and saw a friend's Genos M560V and I was like, oh, this thing's so cool. And then we walked away from it and we're like, yeah, but it kind of sucks to operate. Like, the way that you have to, like, reach over things to get stuff, the doors aren't linked like the Speedio, so there's, like, banging against each other. And I'm like, this is, like, a $150,000, $160,000 machine and it, like, you're just, like, making a ton of noise and it just kind of like this- sucks to stand in front of. This episode is just going to make anyone who owns an Akuma mad. <laughs> like I said, they're badass machines, but it was one of those things where I, it was the little things that just made me like, you know, I'm sure I would make fantastic parts on it. I'm sure I'd love it for its rigidity and its speed, but like those little things do matter at the end of the day, especially if, I mean, I might open the door of a machine that I'm working on a bunch, like a few hundred times a day. And I've had machines where they do bang against each other, and it sucks. I'm sorry, wait. This is a little bit of a foreign concept to me. You can open the doors in your machines? Oh, yeah, because I have uh, the good control. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the uh, the two machines that I bought this year both have the new, like, Japanese safety rules. And... Does the knock have two keys, though, or is it one? Um, One. It's one key to switch between auto and manual, but you have the knock also has a button that you have to press to be allowed to open the door. Yeah, I, I've worked on machines like that. I prefer that over two keys. For anybody who doesn't know what Easton and I are referring to, the new D0 control on all the new brothers, super cool, touchscreen, blah, 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 has these two keys, and I, you're going to have to tell me what's on them. I don't remember. It's like setup I, and... I don't little, even you know. remember. I gave up. I, I'm, yeah. I'm totally serious. Like I, it's, it's really funny now that every time so, so to go back a little bit for context, the new D zero zero has a bunch of safety features built in for like European compliance. And I guess California compliance, I think is what Yamazan told me. Um, the servo motors turn off when you open the door, the door locks when you're doing anything, you can't jog the door with the machine open. You can't like, you can't do anything with the door open. Um, and so like at this point, like resisted so long and I was just like kept fighting Yamazan, like give me a software update that doesn't have this. I don't live in the European union. I don't live in California. Like give me, give me a, give me my old door switch back. Um, and I just kind of gave up eventually. And it's really funny cause I'll be setting up a part on the X one with the, and I'll be like jogging, like peering through the door with the probe and then I'll be like, wait, 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 I can open the door. I forgot about that. And so I'll like open the door, but like the knock would have bothered me had I gotten it earlier in the year. But now that the the speedio is the same way, it doesn't bother me as much. Yeah. It just, it's so frustrating. Like I've spent maybe 
three hours total on a new D zero control now, three or four hours. And it, there are, there are really cool things on it and they do seem a little more rigid. And then those keys just like, ugh, give me back my door pause button. Like that's what drives me nuts is they're like, Oh, it's for safety. Everything stops when you open the door on a C zero and it won't let you open the door during a tool change. Like probably the only real dangerous part. Like how, how yeah. can you get more safe than that? And like the new knock, it it jumps by like three tenths, I think, when the servos turn off. Which like that makes sense because you're never going to be in a cut, so it doesn't actually matter. But like if you're there's like a safety over like a like a dead man switch where you like oh sorry a press to hold switch because you don't want to use any negative connotation, but. If you hold the press to hold switch and then you like take your finger off of it, your indicator will jump like three tenths. And it's like, that's frustrating. Why are the servos turning off? Like that's so frustrating. How can like how can the machine kill me if it can't if it's already limited in speed? And right. like and you're manually controlling it. <laughs> like it's it's so stupid. Like, oh yes, I'm going to jog into myself and continue to jog into myself. Like <sighs> No, no, I'm not. I don't know. But the, uh, it is what it is. Uh, I, I see a lot of shops that like override the limits or the safety switches. Feel, feel free to do that. But I generally don't really want to do that. Cause like, I'm not going to remember to put that back in before the ocean specter comes. Well, and like speedios are fast enough that like if the door was open and things were running, it could be a problem. Like I could very oh, easily yeah. see something like that where you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to stick my head in and then it goes for a full rapid tool change and reposition and, you know, get you. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of that stuff. So I, I think yeah, kind of the UI, like the user experience of the machine does matter. And when I say that, I'm not talking about, is it a pretty picture for probing? Like, yeah, that's nice. Like, there's no doubt that the Haas control is nice, but like beyond that, like having physical buttons is really nice. Having like good quality doors, having like windows that are nice to look through, having like chip evacuation, just all of the stuff that you don't want to have to think about every day, making that a no brainer. Like I don't, I found this out when I was like shopping for the Akuma. Do you know you still have to use a manual grease gun on a like 2023 Akuma? Really? Like on the axes? I think so. (laughs) No. Why? No. No. Like, why? How much does it cost to just put a like an auto grease system on there? I, I don't. Or like yeah, that no kind thanks. of thing. I don't. I don't know. So there's. Yeah, I think that's. Hopefully, we've answered that question. I, I don't. No, I think you did. Um, David Ron from the Patreon as well asked you how have you navigated a fairly large growth year without losing your mind? A shop expansion, selling old equipment, signing on a new machine, and helping out a local school club all in one year is a lot. How did you manage it business wise and more importantly mentally? Mm, I didn't. I don't, eh, that's, that's not super fair answer. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know the answer to that one. I don't know how I've 
managed to somewhat stay mentally stable. There have been quite a few nights and days and things, and I'm sure Dylan's heard it, and I've heard it from Dylan of just like the, I want to, like, fuck this shit, I want to go work at McDonald's kind of thing. Right, like, <laughs> exactly. This, this sucks. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And it just like, it, it especially hits you when you're like drowning in work from customers. And like, it's, it's funny to say this and it feels very pretentious to say this. And this isn't meant to be in like any kind of humble brag way. But like when you're like 15 POs deep and you get one more like RFQ email from a customer that you have to decide, like, can I make time for this to keep this customer happy? Or do I have to say no? And like, is the customer going to be okay with me saying no? It's sometimes you get that fifth RFQ that day and you're just like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. When like the more that gets piled on you, the less patience you have for that kind of stuff. Like you start getting quotes and there's something wrong with it. And rather than like a normal measured response, your initial gut reaction is just to like fly off the handle so it, yeah, it's tough. It's it's tough, and there's to say that I've held, handled it like totally well is is definitely not true. I mean, there there have been uh, for sure nights where I've just like n- not having a good time, and I think there has been more like anxiety and and a little bit of depression involved this year than I've had a number of years prior to this. It's not good for my mental health the way I've been running this business. It's not how I want to run this business. But it's also like, it's a game of like balance. And I don't mean like a game of balance, like balancing your work-life balance, because I don't have a work-life balance. I mean balance and like, you got to decide on your own, how far are you willing to push yourself to get to the next step where you don't have to push that hard? And... Well, and it's worth noting too, you only have a certain amount of time. Like you're very, you're still very young. Like I'm a little bit older than you and like was grinding very hard when we started the business and have progressively had to taper off because I just don't have it in me anymore. Like you have a very limited time to do the real dumb 2 a.m. every night kind of BS before like it'll take a toll. So like I think that you, like it sucks, but you're probably doing what's right for your business and for you. And I think there's also like an aspect of it where you like start realizing how much of a toll it's taking on you. Not because like, it's not the fact that like, oh, I start making mistakes. I'm not one of the kind of, I'm not a kind of a person that like makes mistakes because it's super late and I'm tired. I don't get tired. But what I did notice is there was like a point in time where I was physically unable to get out of bed. Like I would directly sleep through seven alarms and it's like that is your body telling you it is time to slow down and it's like but then you look at your inbox again and you're like okay well i can't slow down because i can't lose this customer or like it just gets to this point where you just start panicking about this and i think that's it's people don't talk about this for some reason. I mean, some, you hear some people talk about this, but like a lot of people are like, oh yeah. And I'm just grinding in this business. It's like, yeah. And and what is that doing to your mental health? Like, right. Oh yeah. Well, and like, even now 
I still feel like I'm building this very tall house of cards and like I'm adding more pillars. Like it's getting more, it's getting, it has more strength now than it did before, but it still feels like, you know, one big gust of wind and like it's all coming down. So it's just like a constant mental stress of like, well, I hope I'm doing what's right for me and my business and my family and all that. It's tough. And I think for a lot of us, like for sure, myself included, I'm winging this. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't have a business degree. I don't, I I think I have technically one year of machining degree. (laughs) I'm not even sure if I have that. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and the funniest thing is you always say that to somebody and they're like, well, you must be doing something right. It's like, I don't know if that's true. I'm making a lot of really good guesses, I guess. Like I'm like, using up all my luck, these guesses. And then eventually you have that luck drop on you. I mean, you have there there and it's it's always those those are like right when it's like the roughest cuz it's like you'll get a part back from anodize that you've been like you're cutting it so close for your customer. And you get it back and it's dented. And now you have to email your customer Hey, so your part is dented and uh, I have to remake it and send it out for Anno again. Don't worry, I'll do it in the next week, though. And your customer says, usually they're fine. Like, you can imagine on their side, they're thinking, why are you just getting this back from Anodaz now? Because, like, you'll quote out, like, oh, we'll be doing this in three weeks. Your customers, what I've found is that customers expect when you say three week lead time, they think that you're starting that job today, today, yeah, and that it will take you three weeks to make that part. Right. No, it takes me two hours to make your part. Yeah, just all the other two hour blocks are already full for the next exactly. Three weeks. And it's like, or I need this custom end mill, or I need this weird material, like especially in the aerospace industry, they're constantly wanting weird materials. Like I had a, a large job we finished up that they wanted 17.4 H1025. Okay. 17.4, easy to get. 15.5 H1025, each easy to get. 17.4 H1025, that's not a common heat treat. And so you call everyone around and you have to get like the special material from X vendor and they're like, Oh yeah, we can totally get you that in flat bar in six to eight months. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. When our mill run comes in, we'll, we'll go ahead and send it to you. No worries. And it's like, okay, well work with me. What's your next solution? So it's like, it's, and it's, it's been really fun actually, because the last couple of weeks I've been forcing my employee to find tools, which is really fun. It's kind of sick to say that, but it's very fun. Like I'll say like, <laughs> he'll say, Oh, we need a five sixteenths, uh, by 24 tap that can do an inch and three eighths, like thread length. I'll be like, cool. Find me a link and email it to me. Good luck. <laughs> and he'll be sitting in front of his computer, just browsing for like an hour. And he'll come over and he'll be like, I think I found one. I'm like, he's like, that sucks. Why is it so hard to find tooling? And I'm like, yeah, it does. I don't know how to find tooling myself figuring this out too. So it's like, it's all this stuff. And so I guess to answer David's question, um, it's not been going well, 
but it, <laughs> it has been going well at the same time. I don't know. What's your answer to that question? Because I think it also applies to you. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm finding a balance. I, I, I'm not balanced, but I'm starting to find a balance maybe. Um, well, I feel I don't like know, I, you I feel... found a balance for a while and then screwed it up. Yeah. Well, then I was like, well, I, I want to grow more though. And so, <laughs> you know how it is. Like, you're like, oh yeah, I'm, do- I'm doing it right. And like, then everybody's like, oh, but okay, you're doing so well here. Let's send you some more work. And the, and again, this is not a humble break. This is, it's so hard talking to people candidly about this because I feel so terrible. You like talk to people and be like, oh yeah, it really sucks to have all this work. And like, <laughs> they don't understand. I'm not bragging. It's like, is it? incredible stress to have all the time and i think until you grow the business to the point where like i'm not going to be the one programming it i'm not going to be the one ordering tools i'm not going to be the one making it like that maybe 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 the stress will be less than but right now it's yeah it's just tough it yeah i mean it's and and i think you nailed it on the head with the growth thing is like you get you do a good job. If you do like nail it for your customers, they come back and they ask for more as they should. I mean, like that's not, that's not a knock on customers. That's them realizing that they have a new tool in their toolbox. The same way you do when you get a new machine or whatever, it's the customer figuring out that the new tool in their toolbox is that they have a vendor that will do good quality work on time. And they want to see how far they can push that tool. And, it's not on the cust- it's not the customer's responsibility. I think that's like I feel like half I feel like this episode's title is should be learning when to say no. <laughs> and it's it's not something I'm good at, but it's something I've gotten a hell of a lot better at. And I think I learn a lot from you, Dylan, about saying no. I think you're a lot better at it than I am. But it's like just sometimes it's not it's not the time. And I think it's hard to realize that customers will keep you around even if you say no. Yeah. I, I think that is, it's such a hard thing to like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm still, maybe I'm good at it, but like, I'm not great at it. I definitely still put myself in situations where later on I'm regretting all the decisions that brought me to that point. But yeah, I think if you endear the right kind of relationship with your customers they know when you're saying no, I try to make sure that my customers know when I'm saying no, I mean it. Like it's not because it's a Tuesday. It's not because I don't like them. It's not because of anything because I can't do it. Like I can't do it because of the lead time. I can't do it because your engineer won't compromise on a corner radius that makes sense 10 inches deep. Like, you know, there are things that I say no to. And thankfully at this point, most of my customers know, like if I'm saying no, Sometimes they'll ask follow-up questions like, hey, what, what can we do to make this a yes? Um, but very often it's like, this is just incompatible with our processes. I, I think I'll also add right there. We've been talking about not bragging it or anything. I will brag on one thing. I have awesome customers. And so, yeah, that's like, I'm very happy to have awesome customers. Uh, most of my customers know me, trust me, work with me till the end of time kind of thing. And it's like, uh, they know they can call me mid process and change things because I'm not going to get mad at them if it's a reasonable change and they know not to ask for ridiculous things and they know. And it's like, 
if you build up that relationship with a customer. And I think that's like, it's really funny watching like some of these older shops where they're like, no, I just make it to the print and I only do it to the print and I don't change it. And, yeah, and fuck the customer. Cause yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like, and all engineers are stupid and like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, have you ever considered the fact that the engineer just literally might not know that that's how you make the part? Right. Yeah. I, I have a part sitting on my desk right now with, I think for what somebody who listens to the podcast. So this person might know the part I'm talking about, but it's it picture a, a cone made out of Delrin. And there's like a little 20 thou long piece of land on it. And I was talking to the customer and very innocently, the customer goes, Oh, and these should be really easy to do on your Nakamura because you can transfer them over to the subspinal and finish the backside. And I said to them, I was like, no, I can't because there's nothing to grab on. And he's like, well, what about the little flat piece of land? I'm like, can't grab a Delrin part on a little 20,000 piece of land. And so we had had that conversation. I ended up getting the job. And what I ended up doing was I was doing them in in the mill with like a little second op fixture that I made to grab them on the ID of the part. And I sent a picture to the customer and he goes, you're doing those in the mill? And it's again, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 I'm, I'm happy to work with you. And it's like the answer to can that piece of land be made longer was not really, I can maybe make it a little bit longer, but like having that repertoire with a customer and also understanding that like your customer doesn't do this every day. Right. Like it's, well, and it's worth noting too, if you're enough of a dick and like, you're a big supplier for somebody like that's the reason that people bring things in house and start internal shops. Like that my whole goal is to be the internal shop for my customers or like, like an additional internal shop for my customers because they could just as easily like, all right, we're going to hire some machinists and get some machines and do it ourselves. Like if you think you're, if, if you think these big companies don't have enough money to do it themselves, you're wrong. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. They do. That they will build a better shop than I ever could in terms of machinery and be able to soak up whatever cost they want. And so it's, it's more of a game of it's, it sounds stupid. You're trying to reduce the headache of your customer. So don't battle the engineers or the buyer on these parts. Ask them uh, to the extent that you can. I know some defense work and things you can't know the answer to some of this, but talk to the customer say hey is this a press fit what what goes in this hole can this be changed like ask questions i mean you don't want to be two days before the like part is due asking hey so what is this tolerance right yeah yeah but like you you can't be asking questions when the part should have already been done that that's a a big red flag (laughs) But there's also this weird mentality of like the shop I used to work at, the owner would always say to me, like, I would say like, Hey, can we check with the customer on this feature or whatever? He's like, no, we don't talk to the customer once the job has started. And it's like, customers appreciate that. Even if it's just a, Hey, here's where the parts are. Like that's, you want to save your customer from having to email you. Like I always feel bad when they beat me to an update email because I know oh, I haven't done my job right. That is the right. worst. And it's like, I had that, 
I had that happen yesterday with a customer. And usually have a good update. The worst is when you don't have an update for them. And you just are like, hey, I'm sorry, I don't really have an update for you. Like, But, but I, just to be clear, no update is still an update. Like no yeah. movement is still an update. I just hate when they, they reach out to me first and they're like, hey, where are these parts at? And like, I could have even, you know, easily just said, hey, we're still waiting on material for these. Or, hey, we're still waiting on a tool for these. Or this machine is backed up. Like that is still an update worth sharing, I think, a lot of the times with your customer just to save them from having to write an email. Or I think like a really good example of this, and we can use this as a little bit of a transition to get into talk about what what I want to ask you some questions about, which is you're about to be moving shops. It's going to be very important for you to tell your customers that you're moving shops because that's either going to go extremely smoothly or it's going to go horribly. There's no in between. It's don't not you gonna... put that evil on me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying uh, it's, you need to make sure you plan for it. And so like, I know you're good at planning, so you're going to plan for it. And like, but you're going to want to make sure that you tell your customer like, Hey, I'm moving your parts need to either ship before this or there's going to be a dead space of like at least a week or whatever you end up deciding of like, you will potentially not hear from me for a week. Yeah. And actually I think as of today, all of my customers know, or all of my major customers know that there is a move. And then, yeah, like you said, probably towards the end of December, I'll send out another email. That's like, Hey, it's real now. Here's what's going to go down. Cause yeah, I, I know usually January is our slow time, but the last year, this year was not at all. <laughs> like January yeah. and February, we're just like, all right, we're back from break. Let's keep doing parts. So yeah, I'll need to be very uh, specific with my customers of like, all right, these are the dates you know, we're moving. This is a, when you can expect I have a potential solution for you. Okay. Um, take all of your measurement tools, put them on eBay, and just keep a pair of calipers. And then you will have 12 slow months. <laughs> <laughs> and you can catch up yeah. on all your work. There you go. That, that's how it works. Yeah, so I, I guess this is a great time to officially announce we signed a lease. We get keys January 1st uh let's see we had a bunch of questions about well, okay, it wait, 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 wait. i'm gonna, yeah, I'm yeah, gonna go. push you back on this for a second because okay. i know a lot about this because i talk to you way too much however <laughs> i don't think the audience knows how long this journey has taken and how long it's taken to get to the point of signing a lease and what you all went through for that so like give us either That's a short version long version whatever you want to give us Talk to me about finding a shop. Yeah. So I will say, first up, uh, it's not as easy as we thought it would be. We operated under the impression for about a year and a half that, like, well, we're getting up to needing a new place. Should be easy. We don't need to start looking. Like, we thought we knew where we were going to put the shop in this business park because there was always spaces opening up. Thought, like, oh, you know, maybe we'll search for, like, a month or two. Shouldn't be an issue. We... I think finished in month 13 or 14 of looking for a shop and finally signed a lease. Uh, It was not easy. We were 
seriously interested. This was the second or third place that we like actually put offers in on. There's not a lot in the two to 4,000 square foot range here. I don't know if that's across the U S but like there's a ton of tiny 1000 square foot, 1500 square foot shops like we have. And there's a lot of 10,000 square foot shops and there's not a lot in the middle. Would you describe the density of a like 1000 square foot shop as really packed in there or (laughs) listen, listen, (laughs) you little shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, we are very packed in there. We, I don't remember who came by the other day, but they don't listen to the podcast and they came in they're like, wow, you guys are really packed in. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So yeah, we, we've been searching for over a year now. Thought it was going to be super easy. It was not easy. The first place that was semi serious, I think it was 2000 or 2,500 square feet. So it would have been doubling. It needed more power and it needed AC in the warehouse. And they strung us along for like a month and a half asking all these questions. And then finally we're like, ah, oh, it's going to be too expensive. And yeah. I, I would also like to say you kind of were going for a long time about the whole 2,500 square feet. And I think I was a little bit of a proponent right from the start of that's not enough space. And after yeah, seeing the right. little layout drawing that you made the other day and sent me of the like speedios all in a room in the new shop, I was like, huh, interesting how 2,500 square feet would have been too small. Yeah, you you were right. So, yeah, the, the specs on the new place, it's 4,900 square feet. It's all AC. Uh, 2,200, 2,300 of it is warehouse space. The rest is offices. Somebody asked, where was it, about bathrooms? Um, we have two now. So zero to two. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be awesome. You guys are going to be able to wash your hands? I'm going to be able to go to the bathroom in my own bathroom. Like, I'm going to change the men's and the women's signs to Dylan's and Brad's. <laughs> like I'm, I'm Even so when you excited. Hire an employee. You're gonna be like, oh, so you see out in the parking lot, you see that little blue box. <laughs> yeah, th- that's yours. That is yours. <laughs> you this gotta, is the you executive suite bathroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, two bathrooms, all AC. I think there's six or seven offices of various sizes. Uh, it's in a really good location. It's down by the airport, so we're very close to the latest shipping point for FedEx in Tucson, which in... So you guys get 8 p.m. now? Six. It's still so bizarre to me. I think it's because you're closest to the hub. So, like, my 6 p.m. is your 8 p.m. Like, I, I don't think it, it. Okay. changes with the, the time zone. Uh, but, like, very often we drive down to the airport all the time, because and you drive in a safe, under the speed limit manner of to course. the FedEx. We're never rushing to get parts out. That would be in- insane. I've definitely not made it. So it actually closes at six oh five, and I've made it there at six oh two as he's closing the door, and so has Brad. <laughs> so that will be our new shipping point, which would be great. It's down by a bunch of industrial buildings, very close to a potential new customer if we can swing it. Um. You guys have more amperage now? Yes, 300 amps, though I think like 90 of that is AC, technically, potentially. We need to kind of look into that. You guys uh, use a bunch of like little label maker size machines anyways, so you guys... Right, really exactly. Need- Three brothers. Like We're technically over-amped right now in our current space. Like We have 100 amps. Each brother is 30 amps plus a 38-amp compressor. 
we've never had a power issue. I'm not well, worried about and, it. And on top of that, like, so my new speedio has a power monitor built in. Uh, that thing pulls like 300 watts during right. roughing. Yeah. It's like a gaming PC. <laughs> but yeah, I think those are all the specs really we can talk about. I know like JT from DFM Toolworks asked gross or triple net. And I know on a previous episode I had said like, oh, I'm really trying to stay away from triple net. Uh, everything here is triple net. Like I had no choice in the matter, really. Uh, we were lucky enough that like not everything is listed in our triple net. Like there's still quite a few things that the landlord's responsible for. Overall, it seemed like a fairly equitable triple net, I guess. I mean, it still sucks, but like it is what it is. Um, I know John Bullduck asked about flexibility on the landlord's part. It was not one-sided. Like they sent us a lease. We took it to a lawyer. Highly recommended, by the way. I'll, I'll do a little side tangent here. Get a lawyer if you're negotiating a industrial lease. Oh, well, first off, big shout out to Devin at Lycan. He told me to get a list listing agent or a bo- renter's agent, whatever. Get yourself a real estate that, agent. That to seems find like a game places. changer for you from like an outside perspective. Watching this whole thing go down over the last like year. Of just like, I remember when you and Brad were just kind of, I would ask you like, oh, how's the search going? Oh, well, we couldn't find anything today. Oh, well, we couldn't find anything today. We looked on Craigslist for a couple hours and still came up with nothing. And then you were like, oh, we hired a real estate like agent to like help us find a shop. And then it was instead changed to, oh, looking at this one shop today didn't look like a good option. Uh, We're looking at a different one tomorrow. Kind of thing. Instead of like yeah. coming up empty, it was you were at least getting cards to shuffle through, kind of thing, at least. Kind of yeah. Thing, and, so. and another big shout out to Justin at Toolpath because he's the one who hooked me up with our listing agent and he was fantastic. Like his name is Tim and it was very refreshing because we would go on our own to view places and ask things of the listing real estate agent and he would act like we were being ridiculous like oh we need this much power or, oh we need to remove these walls and he was i mean i can ask the landlord and then like tim would ask him and be like oh yeah we could ask him no problem like cool so it really is like who you know in this situation this um, whole industry is who you know that's yeah. that's the like unfortunate thing about it is like this is why it is so important to be like part of a community yeah i wouldn't 100%. have i wouldn't have some of the customers i have without either directly people in this community or like indirectly people like you recommending me to other people and things like that. It's like, it's even more like this is kind of goes without saying, I think this whole community is pretty good about it, but like give people shout outs, give people like recommend people to other people. Like it is so important to give credit where credit is due because we're all in the same boat. We're all like going down the same path. It's like, we're all doing the same thing. This is yeah. like, I love this, the whole episode where, where Chris was on his like soapbox about, uh, <laughs> and nobody is special because it's true where nobody is special. Like I'm not, I'm not doing anything nobody has done before, but like, right. It's important to like pass people to the right place. Like yeah. it's, yeah. It's, and it's not a zero sum game. Like I know a lot of people are like, Oh, well I don't want to refer him because then it's less for me. Like there is, if you're a good shop and you're deserving of work, there is enough work to go around for sure. 
guaranteed. Yeah, there's there's more parts to be made, more shops to actually I don't know if that's true. More shops to rent <laughs> is what I was gonna say, but it sounds like that's not true. <laughs> no, so it's most maybe certainly don't, not. Maybe don't recommend real estate property that you're trying to get to other people. <laughs> but the rest of it still stays true. <laughs> Just yeah. like I talk to people. Like it I, I'm terrible at responding to Instagram DMs. I'll I'll put that out there before what I'm about to say. However, always reach, reach out, out to me. Like reach out to me <laughs> and like I want to help any way I can. And that goes with like I think David mentioned it in his thing. Like uh I'm now I'm mentoring the high school rocket club. And do I have time for that? Absolutely not. Um, you seem and, to get a lot of enjoyment, like speaking about mental health, I think that it's been super important for you because it's something besides work to oh, focus for on. sure. No, I think it's, it's one of those things where like I got out of the whole amateur rocketry thing for like the last six years. Cause I, a didn't have time for it and B didn't have money because I didn't pay myself. Um, but like getting back into helping this club, it's like, do I have time for it? No. But like, does, do these kids need somebody? Yeah, am I qualified for it? Probably not, but like I'll try my best anyways. Like it's you're more qualified than most, that's for sure. Well, and that's the thing is like I think it was really funny listening to the the podcast episode you recently had with Joe from Cobra Fan Building where he like tried to talk about me as like the lathe expert. And it's like I'm not the lathe expert. I just happen to have a couple of lathes and like fumble my way through it. And so it's like if if it's something I've done, I'm happy to help you with it. But it's like I think that just goes for all of this. Like just reach out to people. It's None of us bite. Actually, that's not true. Some of us might, but like for the most part, like just try it, like see what happens. Like that's, I've learned so much by just, I think my first time I talked to you was me messaging you. Hey, I'm in the area. Can I, I know I don't know you. Can I come into your shop? And like, it was worth a shot. I mean, you could have just been like, hell no. Community, you like it's yeah. I I don't know. No, it, it all worked out. I realized my tangent was much longer than I anticipated. Listing agents are super worth it. So are lawyers. Like we took our lease to a lawyer. It was like thirty something pages and full of legalese that I didn't understand. And like you know, I, I fed like parts of it to Chat GPT just to be like, can you put this in common language so that I somewhat understand what I'm getting Explain into? Explain like I'm five. Yeah, <laughs> but like it was super worth it. Like, yeah, is it expensive? Sure, but you're never gonna regret that money because there was all these little tweaks that he did, and, and it's not like the landlord is going to come up with a lease that is super protective of him, and he's going to do it in complete disregard of you like and it's not malicious it's not he's not trying to entrap you usually it's just he's looking out for himself and so it's going to be written a hundred percent to look out for himself and so all the little changes were just stuff to make sure that like we were taken care of in the event of you know random stuff that goes on and did you make sure that the one of the things in your lease did you make sure that uh you're allowed to have water in the parking lot. <laughs> well, you see, we have water inside the building now, so it's not even an issue. Easton is referring to, we got, I don't want to go too much into it, but we, we got in a little trouble for draining the condensate from our mini split into the, the parking lot. They got upset about that. 
it's stuff like that that's why you but no i the reason i bring that up is because it's stuff like that that makes you want to get a lawyer it's like not all landlords are as awesome as mine and like almost not (laughs) it's it's not a it's not that they're necessarily malicious it's that their product is the building you're in and if you saw somebody doing something to your machined parts that you didn't necessarily want them doing, would you be protective of that kind of thing? And so it's like, right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's understandable. Um, it's just, you need to make sure you're protecting yourself. So I think the the whole lawyer thing was a really smart move. Yeah, it worked out great. And like, we pushed back a little bit, like there's a little bit of tenant improvements they're doing. They're like knocking down one pony wall one of the roll-ups had been turned into like a set of windows that were getting turned back into a roll-up. Um, I think there was one other minor thing. None of the things that we really wanted were all that outrageous. So I'm not shocked that he was like, yeah, no problem. We can do that. Uh, but yeah, I would say that like, I know David had asked also biggest lessons learned and like, yeah, I would say lawyer for sure is the number one one. Like just do it. Brad and I walked out of our our meeting with our lawyer and was like, well, that's a big weight off our back. Like we're covered now. Like we know that we've gone over it with somebody who actually understands the law and there aren't any surprises that are going to bite us in the ass in five years. Well, I guess our our lease is a three-year lease. So in the next three years, we're going to be okay. Wow. That's actually an awesome lease. I didn't realize you got that short of one. Yeah, three years with the the option to extend for a further three with like a percentage increase in rent. So um, not that bad. Let's see. What else we have for questions? Because I know there were a couple more questions about your new shop. Um, let's see. We got... Uh, did you go back and forth? I guess that that's part... You answered that a little bit with the lawyer. You did go back yeah. and forth a little bit on the rent and things as well, or not the rent, on the rent? No, we kind of knew we were <laughs> locked in. It, like we were lucky to get this place in as quickly as we could. Uh, and I think somebody had asked me a while ago, like, "Oh, were you thinking of buying?" Uh, there was a place in town that had a bidding war in the first twenty-four hours that had extensive fire damage and like people had ripped out a bunch of the electrical and stuff vandals and like that's the kind of market that we're working in so like there was no way in hell we were going to be buying right now it was definitely going to be leasing for at least the next three years and then we'll we'll see where we're at um i guess this isn't necessarily one of the questions but talk to me about thoughts of preparation for moving like what are considerations that you are taking for granted like what are some things that you're like not realizing from being in i think you've been in the same shop for like seven years eight years as of earlier this month okay so like (laughs) what are some things that you are expecting to have to deal with with the move what are some things that you think you've got kind of covered um i don't know about covered but something we did when we got the f and that we're doing again now is i cad everything out in fusion And then you can export a USDZ file and I borrow my wife's iPhone and you can actually use the camera and AR and like walk the floor of your shop. And like I did, that was like especially pertinent when we were buying the F because we were putting the third machine in an already tight shop. So like 
you know, I had, I have two machines facing each other and it was like, can I fit in between these two? Like the math says I can, and like the ruler says I can, but what does that actually feel like working on both of these? And it's tight, but it's exactly what I, you know, felt in quotes when I was looking through the phone at this. So that's something we're doing already is starting to cat it all out. I need to go back and get updated measurements, but I'm pretty sure we roughly know what the, the, Outline's going to be, we're going to have at least a month of overlap between our two leases to okay. like the first two weeks. We, we get keys January 1st. I'm planning the first two weeks are probably just going to be running air and power and then taping off where the machines are going to be starting to plan out like what office is what. Like it's none of the, I think we have three offices that are the exact same size. We're probably like actual offices of people in whatever you know, category this building was before. I don't know that that's what we're going to use. They're about as far from the shop floor as you can possibly get. So I'm, they might be, I'm thinking like one of them is going to be shipping because it's closest to the front door and maybe one of them will be deburring or something. So you have a nice window to look out of, but um, yeah, we got to figure out where everything is going besides machines like the machines i think are going to be the easy part planning our workflow for the rest of the that's, shop is going to be the stuff i'm worried about that's like i mean that's exactly what i was trying to kind of get at right now is because like it's that's always the part that kind of gets you like uh, the airlines are a good one that you guys are just going to block off time because like we mentioned i got essentially the quote-unquote keys to my new space in february i have one third of the airlines up and right. two thirds of them sitting on the floor waiting to be put up in the new space. And yeah. so it's like, I think it's like, especially with like, we were talking about earlier with like how busy you are. Don't do some of this stuff yourself. Yeah. Just I, I think like, we might do the air, but I'm thinking that we're going to have yeah. the electrical done despite the and, and that's, insane cost. Yeah. I mean, it's electrical is expensive and like, I finally have like, probably two years ago, I finally found an electrician that I like and that I trust and that does a really nice job. And it's just not worth it anymore. I mean, yeah, it's expensive. I think I haven't gotten the bill yet for the new knock, but I, I bet it's like 1700 bucks just hooking up that machine because it's a hundred foot run of three gauge wire. I mean, it's, it's going to be expensive. And, but I think yeah. the, the way you're going to do it is the way that everyone does it, which is like, you're going to like try bending it and then you're just going to get a 45 degree offset fitting and you're going to do it. And when the electrician comes through, it's like, yeah, you paid them 1700 bucks or whatever, three grand or whatever it's going to cost for your shop, but it's all going to be tucked away in the ceiling and you're not going to see it. And it's going to be nice looking. And yeah, the the big thing that we're going to have to do, that's kind of a pain is the way we need to look at it again and make sure that this is the way it is, but it looked like, so there's 300 amp panels and it looked like they put 30 amps of AC on each one versus all of it on one. And so we're going to have to move at least one of them over to make one empty hundred amp panel. Like it, it's and, so and stupid. That empty 100 amp panel is going to get all run to one line in the center it's of the room. Just in case for future purposes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to have to kind of maneuver all of that around and make sure that that all works out. But um, 
Yeah, I think we're going to get somebody to run the electrical. Obviously, we're going to get riggers. I'm not an idiot. Um, like, there's no reason to to do that myself. One thing that I did not do, and when I finally did it, it was worth it. Get a plumber in there and just have him put a sink in the shop. We have one already. Is it a plastic one? Yeah. Get him to swap it out for a stainless one. That's a good idea. That's a really it's, good idea. I, the I really like the one you had. Yeah. You look at the price of the stainless ones and you're like, eh, the plastic one's fine. And then you get like three weeks into using the plastic one and you're like, wow, this thing is disgusting looking. Just get the stainless one, get a good faucet, um, that kind of thing. I mean, it's you're actually going to be washing your hands quite frequently. Probably not quite as frequently as I do. I guess that's answered one of Alex's questions. I, I think you can answer. Oh, if, if I'm going to switch to oil in my shop? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's not even a question. <laughs> Come on, Alex. Uh, no, no. Like, Do I know that I would get better tool life and finishes out of it? For sure. But am I going to switch to it? Oh, no. No, 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 no. I, I have worked around oil. I've worked in shops with oil. It's just not fun for people. It's great for tools. It's not fun for people. And I I firmly believe in that. I think you're the only person that I've met who is qualified to say that. Because everybody else you talk to, they're like, oh, I wouldn't run oil. Oh, no. That's no. I would never run oil. And it's like, well, have you tried it? No, but that's disgusting. And it's like, okay, well, have you tried it, though? And at least with you, you can say, I have tried it and I fucking hate it. Yeah, I've bathed in it know how it feels i don't need no no thanks yeah we 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 had like i want to say it was like maybe half and half at my last job was oil coolant and and, and it just sucked i will also say that alex is a little bit unique in the fact that they're running oil in a mill i don't run oil in my mills because my mills have ceilings and i stick my head in there and as is on my mills you stop the coolant and even with check valves and the lock lines, it's still bleeding out from the inside of the tool changer for the next five minutes. Yeah. Well, maybe disgusting. that's why I have such a hatred of it is because all the machines I ran that had oil were like robo drills and Matsuras. And so like I would spend a day on an oil machine and it's like, well, I know that like up to my elbows is going to be covered in oil and my head is probably going to have it in it, like in my hair and yeah, I just went home every day like, oh, this is disgusting. I feel gross. Well, and that's like for, for the lathes in my shop, do I every once in a while get up to my elbow? Sure. Most of the time it's just my hands are soaked in oil. And that's why I buy Dawn just soap by the gallon. Um, yeah. Oh, but actually. You, you joke that I'm not going to be washing my hands. I will be able to wash my hands in my shop for the first time. You know, right now I like wipe my hands off with isopropyl, which I know is terrible because I'm just like, I'm not going to walk four suites down to go to the bathroom to wash my hands off. I think what you're also going to find, it's going to be really funny. There's going to be, there's going to be shop purchases that you've never had to make before. You're going to have to suddenly remember to buy toilet paper and you're going to have to remember to buy like dish soap and like hand soap. And it's all this stuff that like you don't, and you're like, this is where it's like really funny because you'll start questioning. You'll be like, well, is it better just to buy it on Amazon for like a little bit more? Or do I really want to drive all the way to the grocery store to go get this? 
I literally like, just thought I was like, I'll just put it on Amazon reorder. Like it'll just show up yep, when it needs and to. It's like, a little <laughs> bit more expensive, or like we buy hand soap from Uline. That is the worst possible place probably to buy hand soap. But I know I get a case of hand soap when I need it, and it's in the supply closet. I should send you a link to um that you've seen that cabinet in my bathroom. Mm-hmm. I should send you a link to that thing. Okay. Yeah, please do. That thing is awesome for like storing trash bags and like all that. But yeah, that's, this is all the stuff that like, it's so bizarre going from a shop. That's just like, is it like no offense, but a complete shithole. It's a hole in the wall. Yeah. I it's understand. like, I, I had one of those for a while. I had two of those. I mean, it's like, I had two shithole shops before my current one. And it's like, you just like, you get so used to it, and then you get to the news position, and you're like, whoa, I can, like, go – I can go to the bathroom on, on my own time? Yeah. Well, like, I'm going to have to get a vacuum, and, like, we're going to have oh, to get, like, yeah. a mop, like, for the bathrooms. Like, not a shop mop, but, like, one that, like, leaves a nice floor. Just get uh, a Roomba. That has been a idea. major shop upgrade. I Like, it was really funny because when you guys were both here – couple months ago, or like a month ago or whatever, Brad was telling me like, Oh, you should just get a Roomba. You should get a Roomba. And I finally like on Amazon prime day, I was like, yeah, fuck it. And I bought a Roomba and we come in in the morning and the office is completely clean. And it is really nice that for once our carpet is actually clean. Yeah. That's killer. All right. What do we got next for questions? Um, oh, let's dive into, well, first off, Ethan Patane asked, does your new knock have a name and your likes and dislikes so far? I want to knock out all the knock stuff. It does not have a name. Actually, none of my machines have a name. Um, I don't know why they don't because everything else in my shop is named like the Roomba is named Derek. Um, and (laughs) (laughs) we got the, we got the stick of destiny is the, the broom handle we use to shove chips and like stuff around i don't know we have all sorts of names for like everything else in the shop but just none of the machines are named for some reason so that's fair none of mine are when ethan drops by in a couple weeks he can help name some of the machines there you go um and then likes and likes and dislikes likes it is straight up the nicest machine i've ever touched in my life um i that is not an exaggeration in any way. That machine has exceeded every expectation I've ever had. Um, I wasn't aware that a machine could be as rigid as it is. Like you can take, and like I, 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 everybody commented on my posts on Instagram. Oh, everyone's a hero in aluminum. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where that aluminum is not like the end all be all for like machining. However, first off, I don't have high pressure coolant yet because that pump is still in the way. Um, and so cutting steel dry with a fire trace line right above it, getting a hot chip on the fire trace line and having that thing go off is not a fun way to spend like four or five grand for a recharge or whatever it costs. I, I guess, unfortunately, I think Dan Rudolph can probably tell me how much that costs. But um, I think he probably can, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, but I think the thing that you forgot in your post was you were doing 50 something cubes, which you put in the post, but it was like 18% spindle load. And I don't think you put that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It was like, I think it was like 18% or less spindle load 
and it's a quote-unquote 30-horsepower spindle, which I don't believe that for a minute, or everyone else is lying about what 30-horsepower means. Um, And, like, it was... The the more impressive thing is something that I can't show in a video because it's like there's no way to film this. If you put your hand flat on the front of the enclosure during that cut, you could not tell the machine was running if you were blind and deaf. That's crazy. And I think like I knew about this before buying the machine sort of because Knock has this video of them like taking the sheet metal off the machine and putting a coin on the spindle and then doing a roughing cut in like 4140 the japanese love that test i've seen they do do it on their five axis lexus has done it on their v8s like that is the most japanese test i've ever heard of (laughs) yeah but like and i was like oh that's cool and then you actually like feel it and you're like okay so that's why the machine weighs twenty two thousand pounds like there are no vibrations that's just they don't believe in vibrations that's just not a thing and, like, I also love that, like, when I posted that video of the aluminum milling, uh, I was talking to Pete from Chatter, and he goes, yeah, I turned up the volume on your story because I wanted to hear what it sounded like, and then I realized it was just silent. <laughs> yeah, that thing seems like such a tank. I look forward to seeing it in person whenever I'm next out there. Well, and it's it's not just a tank. It's a tank that's somehow also dynamic. Like watching it do a 2D adaptive, the main spindle is bizarre. It's just whipping this like a uh, 10 inch diameter chunk of uh, like collet chuck, just whipping it around and like doing rapid linking moves between adaptive cuts. No problem. So, yeah, yeah, no, I guess likes and dislikes so far, dislikes door interlocks and, uh, length of install time. Um, but I haven't really dove into it too far. Unfortunately, there is my parting tool is coming from Israel. Oh, uh, so where are you second sourcing that? Um, well, apparently it should be here next week. Okay. We'll see if that's true. If that's not true, then I guess I'm going with the pH horn setup instead. Um, but the Iskar parting blade, the blade itself arrived today, but the block that like mounts it to the turret supposedly coming from Israel. So that should be interesting to see if I actually do get that or not. I hope so. But yeah, that's crazy. So I haven't really made anything serious on that machine. Everything you've seen so far is everything I've actually done. I've just been kind of putzing around on it, poking around. Control is, it's a fanic control. Yeah. It's the well, same okay, as well, any other fanic control. That's the word I was waiting for, because we got two questions. Uh, I surf knee asked, why do people actually use the fanic control? And then more seriously, uh, Jay Pearson asked, brother control versus fanic control, pros and cons, go. So, okay. First question, why do people use fan and control? I don't know. I'm weird. I like it. I think it's actually not that bad. I don't think it's that difficult to learn. I think it's kind of clunky looking and, but it makes good parts and 
I, I, it, it doesn't fail me. Well, I told you, like, the analogy I use is that it's like MS-DOS in a sexy dress, but uh, I also told you immediately after that that, like, I think people who hate on Fanuc in general have never run an unreliable machine. Like, Fanuc is the most reliable control out there, I would I would argue. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, I was talking to actually Matt about this today, is both of us used to run an ST10Y, and sometimes it would just bug out. And like one of those bugs was that it would require a power restart. But if your boring bar is down inside the part on a machine with no absolute encoders that doesn't let you jog before zero returning it, how do you get your boring bar out? Oh, well suddenly Haas ends up being so intuitive because you have to pull out the manual and you have to find the parameter that you can turn on that allows you to jog the machine before you do a power restart just to get your boring bar out. And so it's like, is the Haas control better than Fanuc? Maybe. It's certainly easier to use. But like, I, on a lathe, I wouldn't want anything other than Fanuc. I think the other thing that I was talking to Matt about today, because we're actually talking about this question was I think there's like a general perspective of like, Oh, I want the sexiest. I want the fastest control, etc. That was another downside of the DMG. It glitched out during their demo for me. Was that Celos on top of Siemens or Celos on top of Fanuc? Mitsubishi. Oh, right. Okay. And it was yeah. Celos that was glitching out. And so it was like the machine Myself was still running, but the control froze up. And it's like... Which is the most terrifying thing a control can do. And and again, is it more intuitive on the front end? Sure. But the thing that people don't realize about lathes is complicated lathe part might be 600 lines of code. Each of those lines is doing a hell of a lot more than one line of mill code. It is potentially moving several inches with one line of code. And like, it is really dicey if it like freezes up on one of those lines of code or if it glitches out. So that's where I like, I'm a big supporter of like the only two lathe controls you'll ever find in my shop are going to be Mitsubishi or Fanuc. And Mitsubishi is going to be on the Swiss side and Fanuc is going to be on the, like on, on the turning side. I think to answer Jay, Jay's question, though, I can't really answer that question. I don't. I've never really had a modern milling machine with a Fanuc control. I've done both. I prefer Brother. I think it's a little bit more user friendly. Uh, Fanuc very often is put on by separate machine tool builders, unless you're talking a Robo Drill. And so then you get in the the fun thing of like, oh, I've got an error. And then like the alarm code just says like machine tool builder error. And then you got to go to the manual and you got to look up like the Kitamura code, like on, on the older Kitamuras on mine that I had, it would give you, I don't remember, I want to say it was like a double zero alarm and double zero meant machine tool builder. And then you would like hit this button and the little LCD that showed you what tool pot was currently active would give you the two-digit oh, MTB so this is a zero alarm M. number. 
Is this the no, zero this was M? The, on the well, I've had it on the zero M, and then I've also had it on the J three hundred that okay. we had on ours. And yeah, it would give you the machine tool builder, and then you go to your Kitamura man, you'll be like, oh, twenty three. Okay, that's this air low error pressure alarm. Okay, um, so like brother is just more integrated. Like they make the machine, they make the machine tool. Their alarms are fairly legible you can hit help and usually get your way out of those things <laughs> they're still a little bit in jinglish sometimes of like just yeah like Japanese but like for example translated we lost, english we lost the absolute encoder positions on xyz recently on the x2 and we just followed the recovery guide that popped up and like done and like robodrill probably would be able to do that i don't know that a doosan would be that easy i don't know that a you know, a Matsuro would be that easy. Maybe they are now with Handyman and whatever Doosan calls their help guide. But uh, yeah, in my I, experience, I it's not that easy. I, I think I prefer, and there's absolutely no bias here from either of the two people on this podcast, but I think the brother control is perhaps one of the best milling machine controls I've ever used. I think it's like a perfect blend between like the Haas controls, like usability and the fanic control like reliability it just does what i tell it to whenever i want yeah i agree i know chris will fight us on that one because it doesn't do macros in mdi and <laughs> except for my new machine does but chris right will never shut up about that one i mean to be fair i would love to be able to do macros from mdi but also i actually prefer my probing stuff broken out the way i have it i find it actually yeah, that's, a lot more user-friendly that's what so. i feel and chris still says but i want to be able to pull up my phone and use the renishaw gopro app and nope i'm good <laughs> i'm definitely getting like five text messages after this goes oh, live for sure that. yeah we're both gonna get blown up by chris <laughs> <laughs> Chief Bub, Alex Kern also asked, we both like cooking. What is one of your favorite things to cook? Ooh. Um, food? Come on now. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll go first. I There's a recipe that I got from Chef Steps a million years ago that is sous vide salmon on top of like a red bean salad. It's like red bean and parsley and onion maybe. And then it's uh, creamy cauliflower puree, which okay, you normally lost me at I would, the last part. But. I would never go with cauliflower puree, but it's so good. And for the most part, it's because it's like cauliflower and a ton of butter and a ton of lemon, so it's like a very good. It's not a mashed potato substitute either, which is what I hate when people do. They're like, "Oh, it's it's mashed cauliflower," and I'm like, "All right, yeah, whatever." Um, but I love making that. I love making steaks. Uh, I don't know. Tacos are always good. I live in Arizona, so it's not white people taco night over here. It's you know pretty authentic no crunchy stuff. taco Usually. shells and pre taco seasoning pack. Yeah. I, I don't go and pick up my Ortega starter pack <laughs> and, you know, build my tacos that way. I'm so, um, I'm so thankful. I grew up in a household that did not believe in anything Ortega <laughs> and, but yeah, I guess I guess I have maybe an answer. It's the one that like probably everyone has seen me cook several times because it's just kind of a good fallback. It's just making some like good masala or just I don't know, general curry, like either green curry, like a Thai green curry or whatever. Like something like a curry is like one of my favorite things to make because it's like you can pack so much flavor into something and there's like 
a lot of different ways you can like really screw it up and like make total white people curry. And there's a very slim ways to make it like really good. And I think that's why like you can do the extreme version of what Brad does, which I always love when I've gone to restaurants with Brad, he'll always pick the thing on the menu that looks the worst. And then he, and you're like, why, yeah. why are you doing that to yourself? And, but <laughs> He's it's just like very curious, <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's a valid thing of like, it's like you always get green curry if you go to a Thai restaurant. Cause like red curry has so much like inherent, just spices in it that you can like kind of masquerade as just like, yeah, it's most red curries are pretty passable. And then you'll get a green curry from like a bad Thai restaurant. And you're like, wow, that was really disappointing. That had like no flavor to it. Yeah. And to be fair to Brad, Sometimes he finds awesome dishes that way. Oh, like no, we, for sure. There's a, a pho place close, semi-close to the shop. And like every time we had gone there, we got pho. And then one time he was like, I want the catfish curry. And I was like, what are you doing, dude? Like, why would you <laughs> Why would you ruin your lunch like this? And you know what? I've gotten it now twice or three times because it's so well, good. This, this was like when we went to the, the, the bar like two doors down from my shop. That's like got fairly good food. And like, there are some like obvious things in the menu that you're like, all right, if, if that was good, then the next thing is probably good. And Brad goes, we get the fried catfish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, first off, I don't even know where the like nearest place to get catfish is, let alone why would this random like bar next to my shop have catfish? That's anything good. And it's like, yeah, but it ended up, I think he ended up enjoying that. Yep. Yeah. So, um. <laughs> Yeah. And I will say another thing I enjoy cooking that's very easy and a good hack is those, I think it's S&B is the brand, but it's Japanese curry blocks. And oh, so you just nice. like saute whatever veggies and meat you want and then throw those in there and add some water and reduce it down. And it is like a very, I won't say like very authentic Japanese curry, but it, it's pretty close. It's pretty good. And like, it's super easy to make. I think the the one that I really want to try is there's this like awesome Asian grocery store near my shop um, that I didn't even know existed until Matt was like bringing in all sorts of weird stuff to the shop. And I was like, where are you getting this from? Um, but the, I really want to go there cause they've got, they've got like the cubes, the freeze dried hot pot cubes. And oh, I want to, cool. I want to try, like I want to make some hot pot at some point with those. That's awesome. Uh, let's see. His other question was, what is a recent problem you had at work and what did you do to solve it? You're up first. Man, I was really hoping that you were going to give me some time to look up my okay, wait, wait. I've current got, recent orders. <laughs> I've got I've got one. I, I thought about this one because I saw this question this morning and I was like, oh, which one of my problems? Because <laughs> every single part I make is a problem. But um, I came up with one, which was this. I don't want to describe this part in too much detail, but it was like a Teflon part that was really skinny. Like it looks like a Swiss lathe part. Um, and the part has a bunch of very close tolerances and then the print literally calls for you to take a slitting saw and cut it into six segments. And thankfully there's a note on the print that says dimensions apply before slotting, but it was still like one of those interesting things of like, I don't know if this part is even legitimately possible to make because the slot is like over halfway through the part on a three eighths inch diameter part kind of thing. And it's a 50 thou wide slot. And 
I tried it and the first part I was like, wow, the turning actually went surprisingly well. Like I actually didn't get a super chattery part. And then I was going to try and use an end mill instead of a slitting saw. And the end mill touches the part and the part is no longer in the spindle. I was like, huh? (laughs) Well, that didn't work. So I tried like four more versions of different feeds and speeds and like, different ways to do this. And I was like getting really close to having to figure out how to like take this part out of the lathe, put it in a, some kind of custom fixture to cut one slot at a time and then put a shim inside the slot and then clamp it on the slot again to cut the next one. And so I was like coming up with all these convoluted ideas and suddenly I realized there's a through hole through the center of the part. And I was like, what happens if I just like, cause what was happening and this is without seeing the part, it's hard to describe, but what was happening was the part was bending away from the end mill. And then as it bends, it would bind on the flutes of the end mill and break off one of the fingers of the part. And then that whole would go completely South from there. So I was like, was it the bending? That's the problem. So I grabbed a random piece of like turn ground polish stock that was the right diameter and I stuffed it inside the part. And because it's Teflon, the bore was like one thou under the drill size. So I kind of just forced the piece of like little bar stock inside and then I ran the toolpath again and the increased rigidity from like the little stick inside the part was enough to get me to be able to get it close enough that there was just a very thin, like five thou thick tab that I cut away with an exacto knife. But I think like, I guess if there's a quote unquote lesson for the podcast kind of thing is like, there's not a, when you're doing prototype stuff, don't, don't think of it as like, everybody thinks of prototype as you got to get everything done in the machine. And either that, or they think of it as like, it needs to be hands off because they think in like the mentality of like, if they need to make a hundred of these, I only had to make three of these parts. I didn't care what it took to make three of these. That's why I was even considering doing like eight ops on this part just to cut a slot with like some kind of convoluted fixture. So having an op stop and stuffing a dowel pin in there and then like, spending an hour with an exacto knife under a microscope was still much more profitable than spending three days trying to figure out how to do this. Otherwise at the end of the day, the main goal is your customer doesn't care how you made the part. They just want the part done and in their hand kind of thing. So I don't know. What about you? What do you got? I was just looking back through my last bunch of orders and actually i don't think we've had like any giant problems i would say that the biggest thing i've been tacking tackling recently was the fourth axis shelf that i built and that you also have kind of getting that workflow dialed getting all the cam stuff worked out um i feel pretty confident in, in it now still need to get my post set up for machine sim because like right now i can't sim that spindle washdown little knob on the back of the spindle but besides that I'm, I'm like making a few parts on it and feeling pretty confident uh i still need to get that probing done on it so that i can actually 
not be fighting, you know, Y and Z movements as the machine grows. But I think that's probably the biggest recent thing. I mean, another big shout out to uh, Joe and Devin for yelling at me for the last like two years, probably that like Dude. that was the way to to do prototypes and me being like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, I'm really good at like four and five ops. So like, why would I do that? And well, now, the one that I love was like Devin kept crawling up both of our ass about that. And I, the second I used the the shelf for the first time on mine, I immediately texted Devin with just, you were right. And Devin goes, ha 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 ha. What about what? And I was like, <laughs> about the trunnion. And he was like, yeah, I totally was. And I'm like, you were, you deserve yeah, that you one. Were. Like yep. I, I should have listened. That was awesome. And you've used yours more than I have, I think, at this point. I used mine, like, one burst of, like, three-part numbers, and then I just, like, haven't touched it since. But, like, that thing is a game-changer, except for the, like, absolutely terrifying part where it goes to the dark side of the moon. Well, So what's weird for me is I find it infinitely more comfortable when it is rotated away from me than rotated towards me. Actually, Because I right. can see the spindle yeah. nose, and I'm like, oh, well... I know the tool's not going to hit because normal fusion sim says it's not, and all my holders are modeled like that. I'm not worried about, but it is the like when it comes towards me, it's like I can't see the back of the spindle. Like for those who aren't familiar with the Speedio spindle nose, there's this like I don't know, it's maybe what half inch diameter, and then sticks out of the spindle by like five eighths or you know something like that and it's in the back of the spindle and it's to wash down the taper of the tool and the taper of the spindle when it changes tools you can't see that and also the spindle then the casting goes off with like a a brace on either side and you can't see that really and so like whenever it comes towards me that's when i'm like stopping and like looking in I'm like, okay that's gonna clear it's, it's all good how how much how close are you to placing an order for mcmaster parts to put coolant on the head I actually don't mind mine too much. Oh, you don't? It's not that bad. No. I I can see it being very helpful, though, when I'm running two ops. Like when I'm doing op one in the shelf and then okay. op two on the yeah, vice on the table. Because that is when I, I like start like, okay, so now I have to kind of split the difference. Um, also, I do notice like if I'm doing stuff at A0, totally fine. And then you go down to like A90 and you're like, mm, that's not great placement. Um, well, I just mean like if you get the nozzles position where like you'll end up getting really close to the fourth and then you have one line hitting the back of the fourth and the other is hitting the tool. So that one I have like hugging the spindle almost and then coming down at a real sharp angle. Okay. Um, it's not perfect by any means. I do. I do really want to do what you did and put the coolant on the head as well. That's another one Devin did long before us. So yeah. Uh, Thanks, Devin. <laughs> Sean Connor asked, when adding new machines, what percentage already have work lined up versus just adding capabilities and or the possibility of more throughput? This is a hot take I've got, actually. I think buying machines, if you already have work for them, is a really bad idea. It's um, too late, then. It's way too late. And we can go with, I, I don't want to get too much into this, my install for my knock was told to me to be like October 1st. It didn't even ship until like October 28th. 
And then the three day install turned into a seven day install where they still have to come out back like next week. Nothing major, but it adds up. And like, if I had customer parts waiting on this machine, I would have been screwed. Oh yeah. And so I think I get it. I get the, like, I get the whole thought process of like, oh my God, I just got this huge order or, oh my God, I could get this huge order if I order in a machine. I don't think it's ever going to work out the way you think it will. Or if you do, if it does work out, then you have much better luck than I do. And (laughs) I think it's like one of those things where like the way I think about buying machines. And again, I, as we established much earlier in this podcast, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm winging it the entire time as I'm going through all of this. But the way I look at buying machines is like, think about the parts you've currently got. What would make that more efficient? It's not like I'm not. And that also goes with, I think what you were saying was dual sourcing. Like you were talking about having two speedios and how much more comfortable that made you. Every single one of my lathes for the most part overlaps on a large portion of their work envelope. And that allows me when I crash the Swiss, which I haven't done. Which would never happen. <clears throat> yeah. Never when happened. I crash the Swiss, I can usually still make the part a different way. And that yeah. thing. So I think that's like when I buy machines, I'm looking at like what capabilities can I add while also adding more security to the business rather than in like by the time you're trying to like it goes the other way as well. I think it's like uh, uh, there's somebody on Instagram covenant manufacturing is like talks about like overbearing or like like overstraining your business by buying machines. And I think that there's some validity to that where like, don't buy a machine you don't need. But like, and this goes with the CMM discussion as well. Like everyone jumps to, I'll buy a CMM to solve all my inspection problems. If you're not ready for the machine, you're not ready for the machine. But don't also let it get too late. It's a balancing act. I'll reiterate, if you don't have a strong sense of GD&T, you have no business buying a CMM. Just like invest in yourself first, learn GD&T, then buy a CMM because there are things you don't even understand that, for example, um, when you are picking up a plane, a datum plane, you technically should be picking up the high points and selecting a high point filter because you are trying to simulate a datum. A datum simulator is a flat plane, like a granite surface plate. So if you're picking up the lows and it's creating a best fit plane, you're actually not picking up the datum. And like, is it going to matter? Probably not for most parts, but like there are parts out there where it does matter. And you you need to know what you're actually doing with the CMM before you waste money on it. Yeah. I think there's, I think that's just like in general with machines, like I see so many people telling me, I'm going to get a six axis lathe and I'm going to use it to make all of my parts in one op. And with the exception of Joe from Cobra fan building, I don't think that works for most people with his product <laughs> line. I think it's, he's got, he's in a unique position where he's got a product line where he can spend a bunch of time dialing it in and making it work. And I think it's really great that he's doing it that way. But when people tell me I'm going to get a Williman to make, Zometry parts, or I'm going to get a Kern to do like 
I guess Nick is making that work too. So I guess I can't even say that one. Maybe I'm just bad at programming. <laughs> um, but I think there's like a, there's an inherent complexity that people don't understand with buying machines and things like that. And it's like, there's just a lot of pitfalls that people run into with machines. And I think sometimes you just have to learn those the hard way. And I think, but I think the the big one, if you can take away from anything from the rambling that I've been doing is buy a machine before it's too late, but not too early, which doesn't yeah. really tell you anything, but like well, it's to jump off of that. I think that going back to what we said earlier about finding your niche, like I think that that's why you had the confidence you did to buy your machine because you knew here are the size parts I'm doing. This is, this is a large majority of my business it makes sense to add something that makes these easier. Like if you were trying to do everything, and I think that that's why you didn't buy an M200 too, because you knew it didn't serve your needs as well as a production, in quotes, ready, you know, six axis lathe does. Yeah. So I think, you know, finding that niche really will tell you where you need to be dedicating your money. Or I think that's like, I think we can even push this to like you looking at getting a five axis. Like it's, you're not buying it too late because it's not like you have a part sitting on your doorstep right now that you're turning away full five axis work. And I think a lot of people also don't understand leverage the community. Like you don't have to say no to everything. You can just send it to the right person and outsource. And either if it's, if it's not like super critical non-disclosure ITAR work, you can just kind of send it somewhere and just treat it like it's an anodizer. If your customer really cares about that stuff, have a conversation with them. Most customers are going to enjoy the fact that like the, the buyer doesn't have to go to multiple shops. Then if they're right. like, if, if you oh, just yeah. tell them like, Hey, I have a shop that I know I can send this to just do that. Or like, I mean, it's, I have a list of shops that I know of, that do fantastic work and that I will send stuff that's not in my wheelhouse or better yet. Sometimes I just tell the customer, Hey, this isn't in my wheelhouse. Here's the contact information for like my buddy kind of thing. And so it's like, I think that like that allows you to build your business as well without feeling like I need to go buy this five axis machine. Cause it's this next big job. I think you're looking at this with your thought process of hopefully buying a five axis machine is you're not going to be adding something that you're not already doing. Right. Yeah. It's all about eliminating setups for me. It's not like I'm not buying this to do impellers. I'm not buying this to do crazy five axis moves. It's just like, man, I just like would like to do less soft jaws. That'd be cool. Like that would be really Yeah, great. that's that's the exact like it's the exact same thought process behind me buying my machine. Yeah. Uh last question from Ryan at M Fab Garage. He asked, "My mentor has this thing he called his his kickball team. The team is filled with his ideal rock stars who he would love to work with directly. Who are the starters on both of your kickball teams?" Okay, I have. I already have my starter. I think you do too. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, so what would be the next person on my team? One of them is hopefully listening to this podcast, and we'll see on that one. Um, the other ones, I'm going to kind of cheat on this. and I'm just going to say all the other people I talk to on a daily basis. 
Okay. Like if we could build one communism shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my answer is a little bit more out there. So like in terms of ideal rock stars, like people who would never work in my shop and there's no chance, but like, I would love to get, um, Dean Odell as my inspector. Oh, that's yeah. Like <clears throat> th- things like that is what I was thinking of. Of just okay, like people. You can have half of him and I'll have the other half. <laughs> okay. Deal. Deal. For anybody who doesn't know, it's R. Dean Odell on YouTube. Probably some of the best GD&T videos out there that I've seen. And just like so in-depth and well-explained. Um, I don't really know anything else. Like, I would I would lock Chris Sapatini in my shop with a pair of handcuffs. Or like, you know, <laughs> I was like say, the, he wouldn't <clears throat> voluntarily be there. But yeah, okay. the, uh, the like, you know, the um, you see in the movies, somebody is in a dungeon and they got the chain around the ankle. That's just long enough that they can move around the cell. I'll put that on Chris, and Chris will be like my lead setup guy. Oh, yeah, there you go. Your lead programmer and setup. Be like, all right, here's it's just long enough to get to the Knox. Don't try anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't know. I think there's like, I think that's part of what's like cool about that question. Like, kind of elaborate on my cop out answers. Like, how can you think about like the ultimate powerhouse of shop would be if. Somehow all of us control freaks could get along for like a few days and all of us got together from the whole community. I mean, you could have so much knowledge in between all of our heads about making parts that you could build such an unbelievably powerful shop of just any part that comes through the door. Somebody would know how to make it kind of thing. Right. But yeah, the problem is, is that we're all of that same entrepreneur mindset, too. Like I had a friend recently or not recently, it was maybe a year ago, ask me like, you know, seriously, like, oh, we might get this big contract. Maybe we'll buy you out and have you work for us. Like, what would you think about that? And I was like, oh, give it some thought. And then I told him like a few days later, I was like, honestly, no, it would be two weeks into it. And I would already be scheming for my next shop that I'm going to build myself. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a good employee. Like it just... Yeah, I know that I at this point. And it's you think back on it, it's like it's stuff that you like didn't realize. It's like you think back at your previous jobs about how much you were trying to control it and they wouldn't let you and how frustrating that made it. It was like I remember I was like, if we just use this one end mill that I know of, like this will make this part go well. And it's like, can we get this end mill? And the boss is like, No, we've already got that end mill. And you're like, No, but it's not the right one. And like it's I it's entrepreneurial spirit is another word for just wanting to control everything. And it's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, (laughs) but like, no, but it is a real thing for sure. I think that's, I think that's part of it though. Is like, I think the ultimate kickball team doesn't exist because we can't do that. So the ultimate real kickball team is people that work well with you and share the same, like kind of passion for this. And I, think that's i've gotten really lucky with my kickball starter my real life kickball starter of matt of just having yeah. somebody that is excited about this i mean matt went out and bought his own speedio and put it in his garage and uh-huh. there's not a ton of employees that'll do that and that's some shops might look at that as oh my god he's going to compete with me i hope he does right like you know yeah. what at the end of the day if he if he starts doing job shop work that means that he's going to start learning stuff on the speedios that I don't know. 
and he's going to get even better at it for when he's here. Totally. And yeah. I think that's no, like, I think that that's why I, I picked Dino Dell is that like when I was thinking about it, I was like, I don't know that I would want all of these a type personalities in my shop. Like I love having them as friends though. I will say like when we were up there for the Hermla thing, we made some parts while we were there. Like I had a ton of fun working in your shop, but again, oh, yeah. you know, I, it's, I think it's I would have been a long-term shitty employee. <laughs> I also, I, I think the, it's always really funny too. Cause like working in someone else's shop is somehow so much more fun than working your own. Cause it's like, it's 100%. an adventure. Like I remember yeah. like when I went down, like it might've been two years ago now. Wow. When I was down at the Jack's boys shop and I was like, what can I help with? And Juan has this like smirk on his face and he goes, you get to stamp these blanks <laughs> thinking that that was like some kind of punishment. And I was like, hell yeah, I get to use the cool new toy that I've never used before. Sign me up kind of thing. And it's like, yep. I think that's the perspective of like in your own shop, he's probably thinking, damn it. I got to go stamp these fucking blanks now. But in his shop, I've never used the stamping tool, so it's a yeah. fun tool to learn kind of thing. Or like in your shop, when you came by, it's like you get to play with my D00 control and see how much you love the door interlocks. Yeah. Um, I did enjoy the machine, though. Like overall, I was like, oh, this is really cool. But then, yeah, I definitely cursed a few times of just like, <laughs> wait, why isn't it where? Oh, the damn key. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I got it. <laughs> um. All right, we can skip shop news and new things. I think we've kind of covered all the new things in both of our shops. Last two questions I ask every guest every week. First up, what did you research? All right, uh, let's see. Capto is a big one. Been doing a lot of research on Capto for the new lathe, just figuring out where to buy tooling. It's like another skill I have to learn on top of the normal tool buying skill is to figure out who sells Capto and what kind of Capto, and all of that. So I've been doing a lot of, for shop-wise, I've been researching that a lot, um, working on just figuring all of that out, and um, trying to get kind of figured out how to get the machine tooled up to the best of my ability and get it running, um, doing research on that, and then just general shop research. I mean, I think... My day-to-day is always research. I just, when I'm not at the shop, I'm, I'm watching YouTube videos of other people's shops or scrolling through Instagram of other people's shops and seeing what's out there. I think that's that's my like shop research. Personal-wise, uh, surprise, surprise, it's rocketry. Now that I'm helping with the high school kids and getting back into the hobby myself, um, today was the big Wildman sale, which Wildman is this like Midwest vendor of rocketry supplies. It's this kind of like pretty awesome, but kind of crazy dude that sells like motors and body tubes and things like that in, in the area. Um, he has like Legally? a, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's <laughs> like a legit business and everything. And he, okay. he actually has like a pretty sweet shop apparently where he like makes some of this stuff that he sells. Um, like he's apparently got a pretty cool machine shop, but like he has his Wednesday before Thanksgiving sale for like wild man club members. And so it's like some super crazy deals. And so it was like all week planning out the next like couple projects so that I could make sure I could take full advantage of the sale. So 
right before the podcast, I spent a absurd amount of money on a lot of items for my level two certification license um, to fly that and some other kind of crazier projects of like pushing the size envelope of a rocket to the other side of the scale, like building some 18 millimeter diameter rockets that you can barely fit like a battery inside of. Oh, cool. Um, so planning out those projects. What about you? What have you been researching? So I am officially taking my first stab at GD&T senior level exam in under a month now. So I have been studying like a madman and taking some courses online. And I, I don't want to say what courses I'm taking yet to just actually see if they're worth taking. <laughs> but yeah, I've been studying a few hours a night on that. I had to sign up. So I signed up through the ASME a while ago. And then they're like, okay, you have 180 days to plan your test. And that was like 165 days ago. <laughs> I, so remember like, we, I remember we talked about this and you were saying you were going to go for it. I didn't realize you had actually like started going for it. Yes. Yeah, so it was like, oh, well, if I spend the money, I'll clearly do it. And then it was like a month ago. I was like, ooh, when's that end? And I think it was like January 4th is the last time that I could have signed up. And December 18th was the last one this year in Tucson. So I was like, all right, well, I guess we're just going to do it. <laughs> so yeah, I've been studying a ton for that. I don't really have a ton of other things that I've been researching because of that. It's just been shop stuff, trying to figure out, you know, uh, utilities and moving and plan our, new layout figuring all that stuff out and then yeah studying besides that i don't think there's really all that much that's a that's a cool exam to take i one of my friends who works for an aerospace company was like he just like randomly put he's an electrical engineer and he so he has nothing to do with mechanical design or anything but he was like hey my company is offering like a gd and t course uh do you think that's something worth taking i was like yes yep yep do it and oh, he yeah. like he was then like he then ended up taking the like course and he was like posting stuff. He's like, I didn't realize you could do blah 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 datum shift. And I was like, I'm very proud. I'm a very proud friend right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, there, there's already stuff that I've been learning that I was surprised about. Like the course I'm taking is three courses. It's like print reading, basic GDT, and advanced GDT. And I'm in the basic one right now. But even then, I'm still learning stuff. I did all right on the pretest on the basic one. I think I got 85 or 90 percent or something like that. But still learning stuff. Still, there's a lot of things that I think they're going to test about the standard that are. I don't know if inconsequential is the right thing, but like for example, inch dimensioning does not use a preceding zero before the decimal. Never like part of the standard, but then metric does. So it's always going to be zero point something for metric and then no zero and just point five hundred for a half inch dimension. Oh, that's uh, interesting. I didn't realize that. I didn't either. And then I was like reading the standard. I was like, oh, there's a whole section on this. Cool. Okay. <laughs> there's some weird stuff in the standards. I was talking to a customer recently about the standard of using decimal dimensions for um decimal dimensions for threads 
um, because I thought that was like, it's a very unique thing that you see in like a lot of aerospace prints is they'll use like 0.19 by 32 thread instead of 1032. And like, I was suddenly just really curious one day of like, is that because it's a Creo thing or NX thing or whatever, or is it like a company standard or what? So I just like, I have a good relationship with this customer. So I just asked and customer didn't know off the top of their head. So they were like kind of looking it up and we both ended up reading the, the Y 14.6 like ASME standard. And sure enough, it just describes that that's like the way you're supposed to do it. And so it's like, there's some weird stuff in those standards, but I hate that though. So much like just put 1032, please, please. (laughs) Well, apparently the standard says you can do you, you have to do both or just the decimal. So it has to be number 10 parentheses 0.190-32. Or you can just put 0.190-32 or whatever. I'm sure somebody listening to this podcast will correct me and I'm not saying it correctly or whatever. But Still, it is very frustrating when you see that because it's not like tough with the stuff you know, but it's when you get like the 0.4375-24 and you're what what is that again? What's the fraction? Well, no, for no, that? the one that like, always trips me up is the point one six four. That's eight thirty two, right? Is it or is it? Po- yeah, is it one thirty six is six and one sixty four is eight? Exactly. So I always mix those two <laughs> up, though. That's that's exactly the like, thought process I have to go through. Yeah, um, that's the only way I can do it. Is I have to remember that six is smaller than 160 and i'm like all right yeah that, that's what it is <laughs> oh but yeah all right so the, last question what are the things you've been working on to be a better person leader employer what have you uh i'm actually going against what we were just talking about for the um when we were talking about the entrepreneurial spirit of the like being controlling i think that's something that i think probably a lot of us struggle with but like i definitely do of like just let go it's not your job. It's the like, and I catch myself doing it and I'm trying to like push myself away from that. And that's what I was saying with the tooling. Like I've been trying to encourage Matt to go find tooling and things like that. It's not like, it shouldn't always just be like, we use my tooling the way I want the tooling done. Or like it's, it always goes back to like, I always remember the episode with Mickey and Alex of the, Oh, I wouldn't do it that way. I find myself doing that so frequently. I can only imagine how annoying that is from the other side of that. Like, who cares? Like, if he wants, like, my employee wants to do this, or, like, if a vendor wants to do whatever, it's like, it doesn't matter. If it gets done, it gets done. It's not. And so I'm, like, trying to, like, really pay attention to that and make sure that I'm being less controlling and it's, like, it's not just myself anymore. And like, this goes along with like another big change we made this year of going with paperless parts. It's like, I have to get stuff out of my head. It's not my business. It is Moria manufacturing as a business entity, not Easton's playhouse kind of thing. And it's like, right. Um, I think there's like, along with that is like getting stuff out of my head is the other kind of thing I've been really working on. Cause like, I'll frequently, it'll be like, I know what's going on in the shop. I know when things are due. I know what quantities there are. I know what the material is. 
But if that information is not available to everyone in the shop, it's just a time waste and like it doesn't make anyone happier. And so like I've been working on being more organized because I'm a very unorganized person and like I can work in my own mess, but like it doesn't help anyone to like work in my mess. But there's, I don't know if you have it too, but I have, I very much have object object permanence where like if I put something down, even if it's in the wrong place, I'll remember it's there. Oh and yeah. The no, the most annoying thing is when Brad goes and puts it away and then I'm like, well, where'd this end mill go? It was right here under this binder, under this thing. And he's like, yeah, I cleaned all that. I'm like, yeah, but where'd, where'd it go? I need oh to no, I have it. the same thing with Matt. And it's like, it also makes me like feel like a bad boss when I like watch him go over and start using a machine that I was just using the night before or whatever. And there's like this mountain of just stuff pile. Like there will be like, I don't, this is not the correct way to do this. So this don't, don't judge me too hard on this, but like there'll be a pair of calipers on top of a micrometer on top of a pile of end mills on top of a pile of drills all on one bench, just like piling up, just asking for like the calipers to drop on the floor and make me have to buy a new pair or whatever. And that's how I work. But then I'll watch him like stand over there and just like try and do something and just like be looking at it. Like what, what, what is going on over here? And like, that's not fair to him. That's not fair to anyone who works in my shop. And so it's like, that's, that's what I'm working on is just being more organized and being a little bit less like let, let people do what they need to do kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I'm definitely, I think that that's what I've been working on a lot is like, trying to clean up after myself as as childish as that sounds like trying to clean oh, yeah. up after myself in the shop because brad's the same way like he's very much he's he's very clean usually and likes a clean work area and i know that i especially when i'm rushed like if i'm trying to get stuff out like on a saturday or something you know we'll come in monday and it's just like oh what tornado tore through this shop well, it, and made everything terrible the best ones will be like i'll come in the next day and there will be literal tape dispenser on the floor next to the shipping bench because the shipping bench has other parts on it, but I had to pack something up in a rush. So I did it kneeled on the floor, but then it was seven 45 and FedEx closes at eight. So I didn't have time to put the tape dispenser away. So I just got up and rushed out into my car and ran and didn't come back kind of thing. And so it's like, I'm working, I'm doing that. So I think that's, I think that's maybe just like the, it's the chaos that goes on inside of an ADHD person's head. <laughs> yes. Well, Easton, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You suggested that I talk about the new shop experience. So I really appreciate that. And it was great to get to catch up. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me probably on Instagram, although I don't spend a ton of time on there anymore. Um, but yeah, I think it's Moria underscore manufacturing. Uh, I guess we're technically on LinkedIn as well. If you are a customer reaching out, that would be probably a great place to do it. Um, yeah, probably just Instagram. Our website is moriamanufacturing.com if you want to go there. Um, so just reach out any way you can. If you've got my number or whatever, also reach out there. I'm always happy to chat, always happy to help. Awesome. Thank you to new Patreon members, Adrian, Weston, and Alex. You guys make this show possible so I can send people like Easton a mic and headphones so you guys get a good audio. Thank you all for listening, and I will be back next week. <laughs>